Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. I'm here with Bill Stagel. We have Greg Schroeder waiting to come in. Happy Sunday evening, happy holidays, and welcome to the Greg Schroeder and All Things MVF episode. Bill, are you excited? Hey, good evening, buddy. Yeah, very, very excited to uh, to talk to the guys from the MVF and uh, find out what's going on there, what's happened in the, uh, the history of the MVF and, you know, maybe we can get it supercharged a little bit revitalized. I know you've talked about, uh, reintroducing the chat room over there. So I'm ready to get the show started. Yeah. As Bill had mentioned, uh, we are over in the MVF and we are in the chat room there. Um, so if you're a member of the MVF and you haven't been in the chat room in a while, we're, we're, we're multitasking. We're going to try to monitor both the MVF chat room and the switchboard here. So uh, hop in over in the chat room. We may entertain a question or two for Greg uh, as the show progresses. So I'll stop in and say hi. There's a few members already in there. Greg himself is in there. Um, so what do you think, Bill? Are you ready to introduce Greg? Yeah, um, let's do it. You know, buddy, we've talked a little bit before the show. We typically will we'll start the show off with a few topics um, recently on the MVF, but we figured since the show's about the MVF, we'll get Greg on sooner rather than later. And uh, there's certainly a number of topics, active topics on the MVF that we want to talk about. But let's get uh, Greg's participation and even the, uh, the, husband, the husbandry guy's participation as well. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Greg Schroeder owns and moderates and maintains the MVF which is the Morelia Viridis Forum. It's the Internet's premier condor forum. Um, of course, I'm pretty biased because I'm a member there, um, but I think it's the best. And the forum's been going strong for almost 12 years. It's a great local gathering space for the condor heads in the U.S. and abroad. Um, it has the most trusted condor classifieds in the world, period. Um, so please join us as Greg Schroeder talks condor husbandry and all things MVF. Greg, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. 
Um, Hi, Greg. Hi, Greg. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, giving me a chance to come on. Thank you for taking the time to to come on. You're you just like everyone else. You know, you have a very busy life, and we appreciate you taking time out for us. My pleasure. Uh, Greg, it's it's Bill Stegall. Um, you know, I know you and Buddy have known each other uh, probably for a while. Uh, I, you know, do not know you well, only from uh, limited participation in the forum. So I thought it would be great uh, for you to to tell me and the people out there that may not uh, know you just a little bit about yourself, your background, um, really anything that you would want to hit on as far as uh, your involvement in reptiles, chondros. uh, And then, of course, uh, I'd like to hear, and and I think we'd all like to hear how you became involved in the MVF, uh, how long it's it's been going. And so I'd I'd love to hear a little bit uh, from you there. Well, i got to say first that... uh... I wouldn't say I own the forum. I would say that the people own it because, as most people already know, it's, it's pretty much unmoderated. So the content, whatever it comes out to be, is whatever people choose. And, you know, by the grace of God, it's just been the, probably one of the calmest forums on the Internet, with the exception of a few, you know, occasional... Uh, you know, bouts come up, but it's, it's all for the better. Um, as far as myself, uh, the story I understand when I was about two years old, I was out with my grandfather, and uh, there was a snake, and he said, leave it alone, and I had to catch it. He said, leave it alone, and I caught it, and that's kind of where it started. And from there, I was like the rest of us as kids hunting and, you know, looking for stuff and exploring and finding snakes and things. I spent uh, most of my childhood years in Arizona, so a lot of the things were desert animals, you know, everything from desert tortoises to, you know, king snakes and everything else. And uh, I was fortunate to grow up on a, a mountain as a boy with my parents and used to go up and find all the desert tortoises and all their the burrows and would number all those as a, a teenager and study them and stuff. So it just kind of kind of grew. And I had the room like the rest of us with the cages that the, kept growing. And the parents kind of wondered what we were doing with all those animals in our rooms. But it was, it was fun. And it, eventually as I got older, you know, my parents always told me, you can do whatever you want when you move out. So... I moved out eventually and uh, had my own home and built a reptile room and had, you know, the starting point like many of us had back in the, you know, the 80s and 90s with the, you know, the regular big pythons and things and breeding those and then came around the, um, you know, the rainbow boas and the skinks and uh, had some Parsons chameleons and, you know, just the, you know, the regular stuff until had my first chondro. I was, when was it? I had an import that I got from a pet shop. Traded 11 of my albino Burmese python, 10 albino Burmese python hatchlings, and $1,000 for a wild caught Jaya type with a new scar. Wow. Then, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, this is back in the 
you know, the mid-90s when people were still shopping for snakes on uh, other articles and magazines. So um, right. it was kind of cool to see all those. And I remember the, the guy, he, he ran a clean shop. You know, he, he, he called it shotgun and the animals when they came in. But some of those animals that came in, I, I can't believe some of the stuff he had that were these wild cut animals with big white blotches all over them and stuff. And at the time, I didn't know the difference, but I kind of liked the one with the blue stripe. So I got that. Then next, I contacted uh, Eugene Bissett and, uh, you know, Ecological Services, and he was kind enough to let me make payments on a, a female. Bought a nearly adult female for that male and started there, and I ended up producing some eggs from that one first year and um, tried my artificial incubator that I used to use for my Burmese pythons. It didn't work so good, and I ended up with nine dead babies and one alive, and uh, I didn't know any better. I kept the snakes too hot back then, and that baby ended up dying. But uh, anyway, the next year, I did the maternal incubation and got 19 babies. That was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah Got into more stuff. Well, about what year was that, Greg? You produced your first your your single your first chondro clutch or your MI clutch? Well, I got the the snake from uh, the one from Eugene Bissett. I think it was 1995, and it, I did. I wasn't the best record keeper at the time, and I'm still not. I know a lot of guys are fantastic with that stuff, but I I'm not. I just uh, but it was yeah. probably 96. The first first season I could cycle on. I came into the winter and did that, and worked out great. You know, here here in Arizona, we have these really hot summers, so you don't get any cooler nights at all for the most part, and you, you want to cycle stuff, you do it in the winter, and there it was. So it's probably 96 with that first flush, and 97 the second. And then uh, it was a good learning experience. I, I learned a lot from the, the Trooper Walsh uh, second the second reptile symposium paper that he wrote, and I still have that here. And I, you know, I read that, and I, I looked at it, and it's, it's amazing the way the people just thought back then. They would think for things themselves rather than having to rely on an internet article or or just looking up something in Google. That you know, Trooper really was an asset to the Condro starting, and some of those other guys too. Had another paper by. Uh, Peter Gray, and he was with, I guess, the Sedgwick County Zoo. And yeah, uh, yes. he, had, he had that other, you know, clutch hash out. But those those guys are amazing. That's, that's why we have to give a lot of credit, other than, you know, throwing Burmese techniques at the chondros, which weren't always the best, uh, best way to do things. I remember the Burmese, I used to actually spray the eggs with water every day. <laughs> they still have. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that way you get condoroids anyway, but, you know, kind Amazing. of the same cycle most of us have gone through. It just grows. Yeah, so eventually I just thought, you know, the condors are the coolest. I'm just keeping all condors and a pair of jungle carpets. And that's what I did. And just kept kept growing until eventually, um, you know, the, the, the forums were starting up, the King Snake Forum and all that stuff, and... Um, quite honestly, I I wasn't an internet expert, and I I 
I didn't know how to conduct myself. And I, I got in some arguments with some people. And I, you know, you, you only get one chance in there, that is what I've learned. If you say something wrong, you're kind of, you're kind of wrong. You shouldn't, you got to watch out what you say. But I, I stepped out a little too much and I kind of deserved what I got. You know, people came back at me and, um, you know, Maxwell started the, the Condor Forum, which is a really cool place. And I was excited to go there. And I actually got banned. I was banned from the forum. Really? So really? Yeah. I was, wow. I was banned from the forum. And I just started my own. That was it. That's where I'm going started. So, I mean, no, no, no disrespect to any of those guys because I, you know, I did things. And they ran a tight ship. And, they, you know, you, you didn't follow the rules and you had the consequences. So that's, that's kind of where I came up with MDF as an unmoderated forum. Which seemed to work pretty good for the years. Do you remember? Remember what? I was going to say, do you remember about how much overlap there was between the Maxwell Forum and, and the MVF? I was no, I was, well, I was banned my first post. Um, so <laughs> then I started it right after that. Okay, and in uh, approximately when was that? What was what? Approximately when was that? When when did you start the MVF? Uh, you know what? Whatever it says on the, the page there, I guess it was, was it, but maybe even 12 years ago. It was okay. not, not long after the Congo Forum started, so. Okay. Um, that's when I did it, and it just kind of, it, it grew by itself, and, and honestly, I don't, you know, I put up some images and stuff, and it, it grew, it really grew by the people being able to share and uh, just build it themselves with people. It's not by anything right. I did. I just let the people do it themselves. And they're, they get all the credit. So it's, it grew really wow. nice. I kind of watched the, the, you know, I watched the numbers, the totals grow for the, the views. And it's, uh, it's kind of neat. It's kind of fun. Well, I think you're being being modest about you know, your participation in the forum and your involvement. Obviously, uh as the administrator, the MVF um, wouldn't be there without your your work, your dedication, and your participation. So, as a fairly new member there, you know, I'd like to thank you for that. Well, thanks. You know, and and, and you know, the the page itself, it it runs and and exists ad free because of the contributions people have made. You know, when you know when I first started, I kind of got it going myself, but when afterwards, it's been running. Just with the help of others, and you know, Rico Walder, he, you know, he threw a lot of money at the thing. He's a good guy, and other people. You can look at the numbers that have donated, and the calendar. Kim Berg, she's so gracious to uh, do that every year, and that that keeps the forum going. You know. And yeah, yeah. The calendar, the calendar's the calendar's great. I just got mine in the mail a few days ago. That's cool. Yeah, and it's that's that's the neat stuff. The, they, you know the people get the credit. They're the they're the assets that make the thing work well. And uh, so you know it grows. And he kind of watches things happen. And um, at a certain point, I I had to add that politics and opinions forum. I don't know if anybody's looked at that, but I kind of hid in the background. But you can kind of move over the the unruly posts that get going, but you still don't have to delete them. Um, right. So, I don't, I don't know much of the stuff you guys want to, you know, know about, but I'm happy to 
tell you all about it. <laughs> the, uh, no. the other thing I do is when you get all these uh, freaky uh, ads that come on, or I've got a secret forum, I move all those posts to. It's like a, it's an invisible forum where I have all these, you know, funny posts that are odd, so they get moved over yeah. there. But the, for the most part, it's it's unmoderated, other than when they're selling passports and stuff. We don't want that kind yeah, of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I saw Gary uh, purchase some passports off that off the site, but uh, that's a different yeah. conversation. Greg, <laughs> I got a quick question for you. This is Buddy. Um, how can yeah. people contribute? I was actually looking for that the other day. Where uh, there used to be like a little thing on the top of the page where you could click and you could you know make a small contribution to the form. Where is that located? Where can people find that if they're thinking, you know, I wouldn't mind throwing you know five or ten bucks towards the MVF. Um, how can we find you know, you know, You know, I, I don't even know where it is. And I, I remember when I hit it so that it wouldn't be <laughs> a focal point because I think that uh, if you have to ask for money, it's I don't know if that's the way to go. If it's sustaining itself as it is, it's probably right. okay. You right. know, if, if somebody really feels the need to do it, and, you know, they, say, for example, they, they're feeling good because they, they might have sold it, Watch your condos on the the classifieds or something. You know, you can throw in ten bucks if you can find a little little box on there where you're supposed to put money. But you know, there's people that just go there to learn, and you know, they're that, that's nice. That's what makes it go. And there's there's always going to be people that help to keep it going. And I don't even mind helping out myself if it gets to where it needs some extra help. Um, so it's, I wouldn't I wouldn't make a big deal out of looking for extra money on it. Because it really does does good. It, it, honestly, the, the Ken Burge calendar thing really is fantastic, and everybody else that does what they can is nice. And it's, the paid views are way ahead. It's paid really far in advance, so it's real real safe and secure. Nothing to worry about there. So, what is the benefits of having people? So, if we didn't have people, you know, helping out, you know, with the calendar. And those type of things. What what would we see change on the MVF? As far as change, if if it's going to grow, you got to let people do, you know, what they want. You know, it's and I I've always found that when things start getting too structured, and there's too many rules, they don't, they don't last. And I I don't know if anybody's noticed, but I for every single Green Tree Python forum that I know of. I'd always put them right at the top of the forum for people to choose and combine ideas because ideally the more ideas you can have for something, the the better result you're going to get as opposed to, say, for example, just hitting Google and doing what one guy says. If you, if you search around and uh, check all the different sources, you get, you get the best result. But, but the point I was getting at is a lot of these pages and, and no – disrespect, but sometimes they they start taking too much action with control. And it's, it challenges people, and they, they tend not to want to be challenged, so they go somewhere else. Um, you know what I mean? So, so as far as change sure. in the morality form, I, I, I don't want to get it too structured. You know, there's been suggestions of, you know, let's make sub-forums and make it more, uh, you know, you know, different things for different stuff, and it's—I don't think it's necessary. 
it's nice if you can just hit it in one spot and do everything. The, the best right. way to make it grow is, is, is respect other people's opinions and, um, you know, take heart to it. You know, and I, I wish more people when I, I post stuff would challenge me, but I, um, you know, I, I'd enjoy it. They would say, you know, hey, you're wrong or, you know, hey, I don't think that. Um, and you, you can't, right. if you do, you can't take that as a, an insult, you know, and, and sometimes people, people do, and then they leave. That's what happens. Sometimes, right. not always, but there's a lot of personalities, so you've got to let, let them all blend. Very well, true, I think the very one thing, true. It, I, think the, I think the one thing that, you know, even with the different different personalities, the the generalized knowledge that's shared, uh, that's that, consistent or should be consistent and uh sometimes we lose track of that fact but uh you know success with chondros whether you're keeping your first baby or you're you're doing your 50th breeding pair you know the, the sharing of your success uh you know that that supersedes personalities or should yeah absolutely yeah and it's uh you never know who's going to learn or figure out something new that we don't know yet so um, it's, it, I wrote it at the top of the forum when I when I put it together, and it, you know, it kind of says it doesn't matter if you're you know a, a veteran breeder or somebody new, you, you have the ability to you know share something new with everybody. So um, you've got to you know take a, take everything in that you can from everybody. I remember, it was probably. Uh, Oh, I don't know, the, the late 90s, I was at a reptile show in San Diego. I think it was Bill Applegate, is that his name, with all the clubbers and stuff? Um, he, he was telling a story, he was doing a, uh, you know, a talk. And it, this, is, this is, as I recall from years ago, but it's, the point is the same. He, he was saying, you know, I was, I was selling some uh, panther chameleons back then, and I sold one to a boy, and his, you know, his parents bought it for him, and and I, we had had it for a couple of years, and I hadn't seen him. Seen him. I was going to visit, and I was expecting the thing to be dead because he didn't live that long. And he, he was saying, when I got there, the thing was alive and it looked awesome. And he asked the kid, "What are you doing <laughs> that thing?" And he started stuff out of the backyard, you know, you know, worms and bugs, and you know, it's like, oh, there you go. The, the kid, I knew nothing about him, was doing something that. You know, he didn't know any better, and it was, it was the right thing to do. You know, and don't, don't quote me in all those items and bugs and things, but, you know, that's the point. You know, anybody can figure out anything about these chondros. Still, there's still more for us to learn. we got to keep our minds open to stuff. Uh, hey, uh, hey, Greg, maybe you could tell us, what, what are you currently keeping uh, chondro-wise? And maybe if you could just uh, give the listeners a brief description of, uh, of how you're keeping your animals, any particular uh Caging or oh, yeah. husbandry aspects. Oh yeah, I'd love to. I hope I don't. I hope I don't carry on too much. But you know, I didn't no, no. finish with when I about uh, seven years ago. Um, I was I got married, and uh, my my wife she's 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 afraid of snakes. Okay, so <laughs> I I sent out all of my animals on breeding loan. Okay. And I had, I don't remember how many I had, but it was, you know, a number of adults and different things and went out to a couple of different people. And, you know, 
they get they got out there, and I was hoping you know hey it'll be okay it'll work out it'll you know they'll make more babies and eventually you know it'll be fun someday I'll bring them home and I'll build a I'll build a house for them and you know you know habitat for them and everything. And eventually, I got down to one snake was left after seven years. You know, all the all the trials and breeding ones. There's one snake left, and I had uh, the result was one offspring produced. So I got back one of my snakes that I had, which was a hatchling when I sent it out, and it came back awesome. And one offspring from the other animal that I sent out, and a, a third snake that somebody sent to me. So I had three snakes. Those three came back, and I had three snakes, three condors. That's it. And three condors. shortly after, yeah, three condors. <laughs> and short, shortly, but I had a lot of them before. I had a lot of, a lot of condors. Now I've got like Rico or something had, but you know, like seven hundred. I probably had, I don't know, fifteen or twenty of them or something, some babies. But uh, those three came back, and shortly after, the the one offspring died, which uh, I I can't say how it died or what, but it just it, just, it died. The other two are fine. I, I got them here, and I, I I see. I want to learn new stuff. So what I'm doing now with these things is different. It's not what most people would do. Um, in the morning, I get up and I you know I temperature test them. Well, first of all, they sit in enclosures without any heat. Okay, no heat panels. No, okay. No electricity on them. It's a glass enclosure with one perch, and. Uh, sort of damp vermiculite in the bottom of it, okay? In the, in the summer, these things, they sit in a room, and the room is about 78 in the morning and 85 at the end of the day. That's it. That's, that's all I do. Um, they're, they're doing good. And now it's getting to be winter, so it's, it's a little bit cold if you leave it through the whole day. So in the daytime, I put a light bulb under the tank, of the, the snakes, and there's one light bulb under the tank underneath the vermiculite, and it gets all humid and steamy. Right. And I flip the light off at night, and that's it. And they're, they're doing yeah. awesome. They're doing they're doing awesome. They look they're they're super alert. They got nice, uh, clean, you know, unswollen nostrils. Their tongue flicks are you know multi-directional. They're not just like flipping and. I mean, just, their tongues are following you. You know what I mean? When you've got a nice, healthy condor, the tongue is it's flicking fast and moving left to right while it's looking around and stuff. They do all that. And, you know, you can't, 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 can't uh, get them away from a perch. They're wrapping around the thing so fast. They're so alert. But the things are, some mornings, you know, they're, they're 68 degrees in the morning. Um, end of yeah. the day, they're about 80, 82. I, I don't know what it is, but they, they love it. I don't spray them with any water. Okay. Um, I was gonna ask, you, gonna ask you that. You never, you never spray, you never spray them, even if they're in the the shed cycle. You won't spray them. No, they all they all shed. I I stopped spraying chondros. You know, I had them back then. And when I got to the point, you know, let me back up when I still had all those other chondros. I stopped spraying those several years before I sent them back out on breeding long. And I I hadn't had a retained shed on any of those in the longest time and. Back then, I was using just uh, damp towels in the bottoms of the enclosures with a, a daytime high, and I'd flip all the power off at night, and that's it. And they, I hadn't had a chondro 
die in in years. None of them, and they they get cold at night and you know warmer during the day, and this they they did really good. Um, one, and I had powered heat sources in the cages back then, though. But, but I, I want to learn more. I think that the chondros are kept too hot. I guess Terry Phillips is that is that how I say that? Terry Phillips. He was been on MGS yeah. talking about, you know, we're keeping our snakes too hot, and, I, and he's right. You know, he's he's telling us, you know, we, I've got a you know thousand snakes or whatever, and they're not. I don't have any RIs. There aren't any RIs in these things. So there's that speaks volumes when you have a guy like that that's a professional that um, has that many animals, and they don't get sick and they're not dying. It's it's a big clue. So, yeah. But yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm doing now. They're they're probably averaging about uh, through the, their bodies through a 24-hour period between about 77 and no, 77, 78 degrees around there, 76, 78. For the people think it's going to kill them, but it really isn't. I don't know why, but they seem to really I thrive think, in the conditions. I think most people worry about cooler temperatures equates to uh, increased incidence of respiratory infections and. Maybe that's true in some um, in some snakes, but uh, obviously the temperatures you're keeping your chondros that that hasn't been an issue. Well, it, it hasn't, and I think I think part of that is I'm a very gradual temperature change, and I'm kind of looking at it as you know what's the temperature of the snakes, what's the relative humidity in there, and it's I'll tell you what it's saturated by the end of the day. The glass is just dripping. I don't know if yeah. Required if it's, I mean, I like to think about things in viable limits. And I'm not sure we know what the, the middle point uh, optimum viable ranges are for humidity and temperature, but, um, but you know, it's, with, that, with that light bulb under the thing during the day with damp vermiculite, it's, it's, it's muggy in there. And the, the, the snakes are actually, they're wet at the end of the day because it's so humid in there. They don't spray in, but they're actually damp. And yeah. then, at, then at, at nighttime, they just kind of, they just get cool off, and they kind of kind of know exactly what's going on. But, but, they, but it's uh, it's very mild and uh, uh, humid, and gra- everything's very gradual. So, so Greg, you don't, Greg, you don't think that the uh, the enclosure needs to have a period of time that it needs to dry out completely? I mean, you you keep the uh, the enclosures, and it's got high humidity just 24 hours a day. Now, if I if what I was doing right now, I I had been doing for six years, and they were still going well, I I could honestly answer that. But these these snakes, I haven't had them back for even a year. Okay, but they're they're right. healthy now. But if if they go through two three years, and you know, and they lay viable eggs. Then, then you'd have a better answer to that. And now, if they lay eggs that aren't viable, which uh, you know they're, they're adults, you know I think they're big enough. Um, yeah. Then you, you know, you'd start to wonder about some stuff if they need a, a basking spot or or what. But um, years ago, I, I I flipped the collar off at night also, and they I had a lot of lot of viable eggs and a lot of slugs, and I think a lot of my slugs were due to uh, mismanagement of of uh, breeding times. You know, in in line with when the you know the optimum time to introduce the male would have been, but you know it's uh, there's a lot a lot of variables to things. 
Um, as far as hey, Greg, this is Buddy. I was wondering if I could ask you a quick question. Yeah. It actually comes from the why you're you're talking about you know your caging parameters. This actually comes from the uh, the Facebook uh, Morali Virtus Forum Facebook page, um, and it comes oh, from yeah. a member of there, Stu- Stuart Weston. And he, he just wanted to say he's, he's looking forward to the interview tonight, but he wanted to know if you could explain dew point. He says he's been looking at yeah, the grass you have been posting on the MVF for years, um, <laughs> but he still doesn't get it. So I was wondering if you could maybe I take a, a moment or two that. to explain that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, the reason, uh, kind of the reason I, I started putting that on there and, you know, poking at the topic now and again and I and, and really, when I reply to these posts, I'm not trying to, you know, tell people what to do and and uh, say this is the only way you can do stuff. But I think it's kind of fun to know what's really going on in the air. And I I, I do believe that um, by knowing the how dew point temperature, uh, relative humidity, and temperature work together is is very important because then you start to understand what a basking chondro can be experiencing when, say, the snake's basking at, uh, say, 90 degrees under a heat lamp or, or a heat panel, and you have a certain dew point, you gotta, that, that's what the lungs are experiencing in that chondro. The, 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 the relative humidity changes by temperature. Anyway, so the, the dew point is real simple. It's just where the temperature at which dew would form. Okay? So, okay. For example, hotter air holds more moisture in a you know basic point of view than cooler air. Cooler air can't hold as much water in it as hotter air. So as temperature drops, eventually dew will form, and that's 100% humidity. Okay. You take uh, and I have a calculator on the Morelli Virtus form for. You can just have to plug in two of the three three parameters. You plug in either temperature and dew point, or you can plug in uh, relative humidity and temperature, and it'll tell you the third value because they're all related. So if you have, a, a say, an enclosure, and this is just an example, and somebody says, my enclosure is uh, always 80% humidity, then they, the next sentence might be, and I have a gradient of 72 to 88 degrees. So you, you don't know where that that relative humidity is because it applies to temperature. Doesn't doesn't make any sense. So when you get these complicated environments for chondros, I think it you you don't have to know what all these values are, but you got to understand that stuff's going on in that enclosure that can actually affect the health of the animal. So yeah, if you take a snake and it's uh, um within a certain humidity range and then it's uh, cooled too much, it, it might might damage the lungs. You, don't, you just don't know. It's hard to say because it's, it's difficult to get you know, detailed information out of people about what temperatures they really keep. The, you know, because the, there's, there's too many variables. You don't know what temperature the actual snake is. But uh, yeah, so the, the dew point is just where the, the dew forms. And if you look up all the the stuff and the where these snakes come from, they in the in the climates where it's say like a, a Biak range or something where it might be 
70 something at night and 80 something during the day. The, the new point's always like in the mid 70s, it kind of goes up and down. And I, I don't see why it would be so much different in captivity. I know that people will say, well, the captive environment is different because it's captive. You know, it, it doesn't apply to how they are in the wild. I don't, I don't right. believe that. I, I believe there's viable ranges that the snake that are they're actually optimum. There's, there's, a, there's a middle point where it's really, you know, the way it should be. You know, right. not how much can they okay. tolerate, and you know, which end of the high or low range can you get them to before they, you know, start to show signs of illness. But there's, there's something there that's the right range. And I think it, it really comes down to what's the temperature of the snake and what relative humidity is entering the lungs of the animal. Mm. That's, that's, really, that's really what I think it comes down to. I mean, you can think about the thousands of variables of husbandry routines and things, but until you really understand what's optimum, um, you, you don't really know. Because you, you can't duplicate people's um, techniques without understanding what you're doing by duplicating them. Because everybody lives in different parts of the country, and um, you, you know what I mean? Right, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, what's different absolutely. different for me. I mean, maybe I overthink it, but that's, you know, I think about all this stuff. I mean, kind of, even though my, my enclosures are so simple that it's, uh, people will tell me they're going to die, but they're, they're really doing well. They really are. It's, it's pretty neat. Uh, oh, and also, I, I don't use any uh, chemicals. I, I stopped using chemicals completely. Um, so I don't use any, you know, uh, things that aren't, uh, I don't use things that are designed and to kill things, like bleach. I mean, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I don't. I, I wash stuff off with uh, water, and I rinse it with reverse osmosis water, and I'll occasionally use dish soap to really wash things well, and um, but no, no chemicals. And I'd, I'd like to find some... Uh, from rodents that are grown using nothing without anything that's man-made either. I think that would, would help. That's the next test I want to try, try to find some organic rodents. Sounds like a, a nut case, but I know that it's, I really want to. I want to find some organic rodents or find somebody to grow them for me and give them the, give them the food to do it. Some experiment. You may, have to, you may have to produce those yourself, Greg. It, you know, there's a, there's a local pet shop here that produces... They're rodents, and I think they would be willing to um, grow some if I gave them the, the food. So I'm, I'm going to investigate that here coming up. But yeah, you're right. It's, uh, I think there's there's something to natural. I'm kind of in a natural phase of my life. But uh, yeah. Well, very good. Listen, buddy, I, do you want to uh, you want to bring the husbandry guide uh, experts on at this point? Sure. So uh, for those of you that are members of the MVF and maybe those of you that are new members, uh, you've possibly found uh, the MVF through maybe a link on Facebook from David Newman or another MVF member. There's a, a husbandry, husbandry guide. Matt Morris and David Newman have put together uh, and it has its own section on the MVF. And it's really a step-by-step process of essentially how to, you know, source of chondro, how to set up your cage, um, and like everything else in the MVF, it's free. So the, both David and Matt are here with us tonight, and uh, they they decided they would join us 
So welcome, David and Matt, to GTP Keeper hey Radio. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Bet. Thanks for coming on. So tell us about how this idea grew to what it is today. What, what was the what was the reason? Uh, what, did you see a specific need for it? Uh, so if you just give me um, a backstory. Yeah, I can do that. Um, it, you know, I was like most breeders. I was putting together a guide for for my clients and my customers, and. Um, I came across uh, a post sometime, I think it was December 2012, that Ben Evans made, and it was um, titled Suggestions for Classified Ads Selling Starter Animals. And in that thread, there were a lot of ideas being tossed around on how to get more people moved, uh, you know, moved over to MVF and how to make it more, um, I don't know, more accessible to people. And... Um, at the same time, I was noticing that um, Maxwell's book was a little outdated on some of the topics, and there wasn't a whole lot of reliable um, information uh, out on the web. Um, you know, the MVF it had a lot of it had a lot of information, and you kind of had to dig for it, and uh, didn't really see a lot of people going to that effort. And uh, so I kind of said. Well, you know, this might be a, a good thing to put up on the MVF. You know, it might be easier to use. So Great. from that so point, approach- say again. No, go ahead. Yeah, just from that point, um, you know, I just started started thinking about uh, who could help me, and um, started thinking about that, and so I decided to approach Greg with it, and. Uh, Greg, Greg liked the idea, and so I decided to move forward with that and started putting together uh, the information. But as I did that, it was just, you know, there was a lot of information out there, and I was going to need some help with this because, you know, my my wording and uh, was not the greatest in the world and sometimes hard to understand when I put words together, <laughs> so I needed a little help. And uh, after I was reading some of David's <laughs> say the least, long-winded posted, but he was uh, very articulate in the way he put things, and so I approached him about it, and he was gracious enough to uh, to help me out. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, just to kind of <clears throat> add a little bit here, this is David talking now. Um, I know when Matt approached me, really one of the, the big selling points that uh, – I think, um, you know, not to put words into to Matt's mouth, but kind of going back on, on some of our original discussions, was just creating a piece of literature that essentially, in, in a nutshell, would hopefully save a lot of chondros and also save a lot of heartache and failed first-time attempts at, at keeping chondros. Because what we all know through our endeavors is, it's not necessarily difficult to keep chondros. They just have some very specific husbandry requirements. When they're met, they, they tend to do well. Uh, it's just uh, it's just about getting that information 
available and accessible to everybody to put them in a position to have success the first time out. So I, I, that was a, a real big selling point to me when uh, when Matt approached me. Um, and I can I can tell you, guys, the amount of work that – I mean, this is really Matt's baby. Like he said, he brought me in to just kind of help, uh, you know, sort of fine-tune it and, you know, uh, work with him with some of the organization and the way that we wanted to present it and lay it out to everybody. Uh, certainly a, a leap of faith on his part to sort of entrust me <laughs> with some of that work. But the amount of effort that Matt has put into just digging through the forum, getting information, compiling uh, sectional information on anything and everything you can think of is really incredible. I mean, I'm I'm trying to find the right superlative to use. I, I mean, the amount of work he's put in is, is incredible. Uh, I, and what we've presented thus far is, Jeez, man, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe half, maybe not even half. So, <laughs> it'd, be a lot, it'd be a lot longer if it wasn't for you, though. <laughs> I tend to be a little long-winded. Well, yeah, but. Uh, but yeah, you, you're right. right it's now, about half. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Matt's already gotten gotten a bunch more sections out to me. Um, you know, obviously this time of year is always always a struggle with with the holidays and everything, but. I have uh, actually started working uh, on refining the uh, the next section, which I believe will be uh, based on on feeding and prey size uh, and and what Yeah, and techniques. Um, but uh, you know, and again, kind of like what Greg uh, stated earlier. I mean, none of this is 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 the Bible. This is not. Hey, this is the way to do it. This is. You know, this is suggestions, and as Greg has very pointed out very well, there's so many different ways to uh, to skin the cat here, and these are guidelines that if you follow, you're likely to have success as you learn to work with chondros. You can then adopt some, you know, other things that uh, you feel might be more suitable for you know, your location for, you know, food availability, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's, 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 they're challenging, but uh, we're, we're all, I think, on the same page as, as far as trying to, uh, to put everybody in, in the best position to be successful with them. Yeah, that was the whole goal to begin with, is to, to make the new, new person coming into Condro successful. Well, you guys right. have certainly done have certainly done that, and uh, the community owes you a, a large uh, thanks and gratitude for doing that. I can't tell you how many times people have posted, and it's mostly on Facebook, uh, a question, and all I do is copy and paste the husbandry guide and say, yep. "Read this," and I never hear back from them. You know what's <laughs> nice about this guide? As you start reading it, it's, you realize it's really well written, and, and even for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people that are new to Condros, it makes you want to keep reading, and it makes you want to learn, and it makes you want to think. So the, right. that's what's great. That's why I, I haven't said this to these guys, but what's great about it is it's going to give people a place to go, you know. To get started, or 
for even a guy like me to go and kind of read through it and think, hey, this is this is pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's fun to see, um, you know, this, this stuff all outlined where it's it, it's it, it's as good as any book that's ever been written. It really is. It's nice. And it, it's, 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 it's a whole laptop. Agreed. Well, Greg, have you noticed since the guides up, has there been – uh, have have you noticed, like, maybe, I don't know if you can track, like, traffic coming to the forum or whatever, but have you noticed, like, an increase, maybe, uh, since the guide's been up and published? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I see, and you, and you guys can see it, too, is if you go to the guide and you look at views, you're going you're gonna to see that. I mean, obviously, the number one people always read the most. But, you know, there's, there's a thousand views where... Somebody has looked at that a thousand times, and if, if you get down to the the bottom one, the other down to like 276 views, so 16. You know, granted, those are the newer ones, but those are going to save hundreds of chondral lives, you know, and it's going to encourage people to um, keep the animals because they're going to succeed. I mean, it's, it's really going to be helpful, and in, in my opinion. Uh, even if they do end up buying a condor instead of even wild pot, if they can keep that animal alive by using this guide, that's that's wonderful. It's a it's a nice thing. It's 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 great. Um, it's and it's going to make them appreciate, you know, the hard work also that goes into these guys that, um, you know, breed the animals and produce them. Because you, you really see a lot of. Um, you, you, anybody could read through it. And just kind of, they get the point. And it's 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 a serious, uh, seriously written page. It's very 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 nice. But the, Agreed. The, well, the great. But but the the the, the traffic. I got to tell you, the illusion that the forum has been slowing down. I <laughs> these these cycles have been going on for years. Um, I watched. The, you can kind of look at like the, the page views. Um, a few months back, you know, there were times that you're getting 15,000 views a day, you know, and then now this month is about 11,000, you know, so it's a little bit less than that. Wow. And then some months are some months are 7,000 a day, you know. So it, it, it goes up and down. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of those views that sometimes occur because people are arguing. People like to see arguments. When <laughs> the views go up, they're like looking at that. So, uh, but the, you know, realistically, if you look at the averages, the the highest average that the forum has had has had maybe ten or eleven thousand. If you kind of average it through, you know, a month per day views, but it's you know right now it's about eight or nine thousand views a day. And you, you can definitely see some things occurring now with the interaction with Facebook. And uh, I don't know if it's because of Facebook or it's just the excitement of the Facebook post. The Facebook post probably drew in piles of people, but <laughs> but it's uh, you know it's, it's picking up. It's pretty cool, and it's uh, I think linking it into a Facebook thing is a real great idea. That's going to help out in the long run. You got to you got to look at stuff not as the immediate result. But long-term results, you know, you right. can't just go for the big punch all at once. But long-term, I I can see where it's it's going to blend in nicely. Um, well, that's yeah. Greg. That's certainly one of the things that we wanted to touch on uh, the show today uh, was the involvement with Facebook, 
Um, is it you know is it possible that Facebook could be a detriment to the MVF? Um, I think I had noted in a post that since the Facebook has become so popular that there have been you know at least a couple of major forums that have taken some big hits and are, are really almost unattended <laughs> now. Um, so how do we prevent that from happening with the MVF? Well, I mean, I say that no, no. tongue in cheek. I know the answer, but you know, just for just oh, to get some thoughts out there. You probably don't even know what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is, um, it doesn't matter where people learn about chondros. You know, if if it comes to do that, Morelia Virus forum is replaced by something else, and more people like chondros and learn more stuff and enjoy the animals. That's that's fine. But I honestly, I don't think that the Morelia Virus forum is going to go anywhere anytime soon because. It's uh, it's just it'll sustain itself. It's gonna, it's gonna be there. It's a uh, it's a neat place to go, and uh, it's it, it's, we gotta remember to keep people uh, able to say what they want to and not uh, um, threaten them. You know, it's it, it's it's the threats and the uh, challenges that seem to drive away people, in my opinion. It's not really Facebook. Facebook is a big deal, but um, I don't know. The other thing is that it's, it's getting too easy, in my opinion, for the new generation of upcoming Condor people to just hit a search engine, you know, and, and replace thought with, uh, you know, a keyboard. And it's, it's unfortunate, yes. but that's probably what's going to happen. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's just, just how it is. It's, it's life. Things things change. Um but I, I really I don't think MVF is going anywhere, and I, I wouldn't worry about Facebook challenging it. Um, I, I I really believe that um, this is just my opinion that God has a plan, and he's, if He wants this thing to stay here, it's going to grow. Um, if He wants it to stay how it is, it'll stay the same. If we do our our best to present an honest and uh, you know accurate forum with uh, you know, everybody able to speak freely. It's gonna, it's gonna be good. That's that's just the way to go. It's gonna, it's gonna yeah, be right. This is David. I, I was hoping to maybe uh, kind of expand on that. I, I think one of the other big reasons why the MVF is never gonna go anywhere is, I, I think that a lot of us, when we think of the Condro community, we really it's almost an extension of the community that we've built around the MVF as being the place where we feel we're amongst peers, where we feel we are nurturing the up-and-comers, and by and large, that's the spirit of the community that's been built around the MVF. And it's, it's almost like, you know, being on a team where, you know, you, you come onto the team, you're you're one of the newer guys, you, you almost kind of have to, take a, a back seat and learn from the veterans or, you know, uh, or what have you. But in the end, you know, you're looking to gain respect from, from your teammates, and, and you do that with by contributing, by, by helping out, by, you know, being there. And ultimately, I think that's a, that's a big part of keeping Condros is feeling like you belong in this overwhelmingly positive and supportive community of other guys and girls that just share this passion and do it in, you know, relative to some of the other 
say reptile communities, do it in a real upstanding sort of a way. And and I think that in and of itself is is why the MVF will, you know, continue to persevere as is just a, a great community of, of supporters who, who wanna who wanna back each other up. Yeah, that's that's true. Something that I I've uh, noticed over the years is the forum it, it's probably I would say a good ninety nine point nine percent positive. But unfortunately something that affects people that and makes them sometimes makes them not want to be there. And I I've seen the emails that people send me when stuff is going on. If something happens that's derogatory or argumentative, um people will send an email that says, Boy, the forum's really going downhill you know it's <laughs> not it's you have one thread about that's kind of blasting out everything, but it, it happens every you know one, two, three thousand threads. It's not a big deal, but it does make people want to leave. I mean, it really does. That's what happens. That's what I, that's the feedback I've had through emails, and they're not not uh, often because the threads aren't that often. But something that occurred. You know, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, is there, there's something going on that was just kept going on and on and on. And I don't like to ban people or throw them out or, you know, and tell them what to do because I hope eventually it, it can be seen as an example that it's not pleasant to see things like this and you don't want to act like that on a forum. You know what I mean? Like if you just go and start removing posts that are offensive, you know, other people seeing the forum don't get to see what not to do. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, that's a good that's it, a good point, it becomes, Greg. It becomes an example that you're like, man, that's that's pretty ugly. I don't want to be like that. <laughs> so, so I let them run. I let the stuff go. Um, anyway, but what I was getting at is when one of those was going on a couple of years ago, I had a, I'm not going to say names, but I had, you know, a number of people just sending me emails saying, you know, we used to sit down and, you know, with my grandkids, and we'd look at the forum, and we can't anymore because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, and, and you got to kind of look. And then, then another one was, you know, I'm a, I'm a school teacher, and we can't use this in school if stuff like this is going to come up. You know, or uh, you know, some really, really valuable. Uh, some uh, one breeder in particular, I won't use his name, but is a very valuable breeder that has some very alternative methods that are just 100% awesome. You know, they're very different from what everybody is accustomed to. And he won't use the form anymore. He's a very, you know, clean-cut guy and just doesn't want to do it. Um, and it's sad. You know, stuff happens, but it's, it's life, you know. Um, you know, what do you do? It's just the way it is. So then, the form itself, I, it really is 99.9% pretty clean. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a choice. Do you moderate and have people upset because you moderated and then they get mad and, you know, <laughs> or do you just let it run? You need to let it run its course. I think you got to let it run its course and let the rest of the content speak for itself. Matt, uh, Matt Morris, I was going to say, I think of the people that are at least involved in this forum, you are, I would say, the newest Facebook member. Is that, Would that be correct? The, the what? You're the newest Facebook uh, user. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I am. 
Uh, if we were having this conversation last week, I would have, you know, I would have told you I was never going to do Facebook and that, uh, you know, it wasn't anything that I was interested in. But since it's all has come to light, I have, uh, I'm kind of that per- one of the persons that likes to be informed of both sides of the argument or debate, you know. So I figured, you know, unless I join it and see what it's all about, I, I don't really have anything to talk about. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, an interesting, interesting tool. It's a, quite eye-opening, actually. Yeah, I mean, is it cool picture? Yeah, is it? Yeah, is it too simplistic to say that that Facebook is a great place to post and view pictures? But if you're looking for really truly meaningful information, the forum is going to be is going to be the place to go. Is that? I mean, is that too simplistic? Yeah, I would I would categorize it that way. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's a great place to network, you know, and I, I know that's nothing new to the people who have been there, but that's the first thing that I noticed, that it would be, you know, very beneficial for that kind of, you know, activity. And uh, that would, you know, that's great for the MVF community, in my opinion, you know, that little sure. additional. So, yeah, I think, it, I think it, it, it should work very well with the forum. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, I still feel like uh, Alice falling down the, the hole, the rabbit hole, and uh, it's going to take me a while to, to, you know, navigate, learn to navigate it and figure everything out before I can make a, a better opinion of it. But, you know, what I see on the surface, it, it looks like it would be a good tool to have as part of the forum. You know, uh, Stuart Weston is a, a poster on Facebook, uh, the MVF Facebook page, and he often will link MVF topics to the Facebook page. So if you're just browsing Facebook, mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll see, and if the link is right there. If a new topic is up on the MVF, you don't have to go to the MVF. You're just on your Facebook. You hit the link, and it takes you immediately to that to that topic. And so I found that that's yeah, been pretty neat. I tried that. That's pretty cool. I, I noticed that. Yeah, handy. that's very handy. Right, I think with Facebook, it's uh, I think it's all about the you know the photos and just a little bit little snippets here and there. But I think if you really want true, meaningful dialect and content, I think the forum is really the way to go. I, you know, I've I posted things on Facebook and I've put I'm not I don't write really well, um, and it takes me some time. So I I put something up on Facebook, and you know a day or two later, someone may ask me a similar question or something you know, along the same lines. And so I have to go and like, okay, now how did I find this on Facebook? At least with the form, I feel that I can go and find it much more easily than I can on Facebook. I know you can find it. It takes a little bit of digging, but it definitely, you know, the way things rotate through on Facebook, it's a much faster pace. And I think it just kind of reflects the, the kind of the gee whiz nature of Facebook. It's kind of, and I think Stuart's right with the way he's approaching uh, posting on Facebook, he's putting up a link to uh, a discussion um, and making people come to the forum to actually read the discussion in depth, and then hopefully they can find it again. Um, so you know that that's just my comments on on the, the differences. And you know, as David can tell you, uh, the same question will be asked probably you know, seven or eight times a day, uh, depending on what group you're, you belong to with Condras on Facebook. Um, so it's, you know, definitely, you know, people either aren't seeing it or they're not reading it or it gets lost somewhere in that black hole. I'm not sure. 
Very true. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And in fact, one of the other things that, you know, not to jump, jump around uh, from Facebook to, to a participation on the MBS, but uh, just one of the things that I was thinking, perhaps even the, the existence now of the guide as it is, is cutting down on the, the number of, you know, uh, basic husbandry questions, those types of posts that were so much more frequent maybe four, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, even maybe a couple years ago, where uh, it's, it's my hope at least that perhaps some of these people are are reading through the guide and as opposed to just you know shooting the questions out right away on the MZF on the general uh, forum asking basic husband new questions. So so that could yeah, be another. I think, uh, I think I like questions. Uh, I think questions you should always ask the same question again. Because you might get another answer. <laughs> I, like, I like questions too. I should, should read and ask. Asking is good along with reading and studying. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. David, I don't think there's any doubt that it's cut down on, um, at least from what I've been able to tell, the the number of, quote, noob questions. And, and I think that in turn, you know, maybe tempers some of the you know, the responses that would be bound to come from those repeated posts. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I think it's just, yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. Very good. Uh, there were some other things on, uh, recently on the MVF that I know Buddy and I, uh, wanted to hit on. Um, and this, this these are no particular, uh, order, but, um, there was some talk about, uh, keeping chondros in racks versus cages. And uh, Greg had, had the opportunity to tell us a little bit about how he's keeping his chondros. But if you guys wanted to discuss maybe some uh, benefits uh, of keeping uh, your chondros in racks versus cages, I, I'd love to hear it. Go ahead, Matt. Matt. <laughs> All right, I'll go. Um, well, I like uh, I like racks for everything from my neos up to oh, probably my one and two year olds. Uh, once they get past that stage, I just move them up to uh, the adult cages. Uh, I just I prefer the racks for the smaller animals. It just it just seems easier, um, easier to control temperatures and humidity and stuff like that. Um, once they get past that, I don't, I don't think it's as necessary. And uh, I move them to the adult cages. That's that's what I do. David, how about you? Yeah, uh, I'm in total agreement. I think, the, as Matt said, the biggest benefit with the racks is the uh, ease with which you can control your your humidity and your temperatures. Um, I know a lot of people use um, larger racks for adults. Uh, I actually have a, a larger CB80 tub, uh, five stack high. Uh, those tubs are... I guess they're about probably around 24 to 30 inches long by maybe 15 wide and, and 15 high, something something along those lines. Uh, I, in my opinion, the larger tubs really the only benefit is the uh, is the economy and, and the cost, a less less expensive way of housing them. Uh, I prefer cages because you know. I like to see my animals. <laughs> sure, sure. That's that's the obvious 
one of the big obvious downfalls uh, about keeping uh, animals in racks is the is the visibility. Right. Very true. Yeah, but I, I remember years ago when I was doing a uh, you know a lot of different animals and species and stuff, and I had a lot of racks. And you, you just kind of lose some of the fun. So all you're doing is you know sliding racks open all day and doing stuff at each one, sliding it back, and you just kind of you don't get to see what your accomplishment is. So I, I really like the stuff you should be inside of and appreciate the animals too if you if you have the room for it. Yeah, agreed. Buddy, have you kept uh, have you kept any adults in racks? I do have a habitat systems rack that I will occasionally put a, uh, an adult male or two in, um, but I prefer you know I just prefer caging just because I like to look at them. Uh, the tubs I use are clear you know Cambro style tubs, so you can see the yeah. snake really well. Um, but I just don't like you know they have to for me taking the entire tub out of the rack to do a water bowl change. I just think you disturb the snake a little bit too much. I've used them. I've not had any problems with them. And I've also had, occasionally I get a snake where I want to move it from, uh, you know, maybe I get a yearling or a two-year-old and I decide to move it to an adult enclosure. And it doesn't, just doesn't settle down or, you know, I try to wait out that it may not be eating. And sometimes I just have to, like, bump them back into a tub for a little while longer. And if that's the case, I normally put them in the, into that habitat systems rack as kind of a an intermediary, uh, you know, it's still a tub, but it's still, the visibility's better, so it kind of gives them some time to acclimate. But not normally, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I like to see my snakes personally, so that that's why I don't. Okay, fantastic. Buddy, I think you said that there was a uh, a question from the chat room for Greg. Yeah, Greg, Ooh, we do have a question, and it's uh, from Forrest Fanning, and his question is, I need to get back to it here, um, it's about, he, want, he would love to hear you talk about your knowledge and experience with both lemon tree and dream animals. Oh, good. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, I, I know I get carried away off on side topics and stuff. I'll try not to do that. Um, <laughs> my, I think the first two, oh, no, I'm sorry, the first captive bred snake, or, you know, I should say captive uh, produced in the United States snake that I purchased was from Eugene Bissett in 1995. And then after that, I went through a, a pile of imports that I, you know, they were obviously wild caught adults. And they, they all perished. But then eventually the next two snakes I bought um, were two lemon tree pythons, and I bought them directly from Tim Tremazzi. And T- Tim Tremazzi, I, I had a chance to, you know, actually talk with him a number of times, you know, in person. And it's it's one of the best experiences I've ever had. He's The guy, is just his information and, you know, all the stuff about the lemon trees and what he had done um, was just really cool. So, from from, from the beginning, he he got two snakes from Doug Price, about three snakes from Doug Price, which used to be a breeder of green tree pythons, which um, he got his imports from a time when they weren't coming out of, uh, well, actually, they're coming out of, 
the uh, you know, Papua New Guinea at the time. That's how long ago it was. So his Doug Price's breeders, which had the offspring that Ben Tremese got, um, ended up being the beginning of that lemon line. He had a male and two females. Okay. Uh, 1995 was Tim Tremacy's first clutch of green tree pythons. Now I ask Tim these questions over and over, and you know, upwards, up, upside down, and backwards, and and I am telling you the best I remember. But I asked him all this stuff many times over and over again, so I think I got it right. Um, his first clutch in 1995 came from you know that male. Not female. Now, nobody knows if they were related, those those animals. They don't know if they're from the same clutch. And, uh, you know, because Doug Price produced a lot of, a lot of green tree pythons. But uh, that first clutch from 95, he saved the half ones, and he grew them all. And he took pictures of them. And he has a book of all the, he grew them through color change. And then he had a, a, the next clutch in uh, 96 from the other female. And then the first female in 97, and he grew all those animals from 95, 96, and 97. And I don't know if he grew them in 98, too, but he took pictures of all of them after he grew them. And I've seen the book. It's it's really cool, you know. Probably half of them are what you might look at today and say, hey, that's a nice-looking high-yellow chondro. You know, and probably 25% of them you'd look at them and say, hey, those are... Those are all right, kind of green with some, you know, blue marks and a couple of yellow spots. And then the other 25%, you go, wow, man, those things are awesome. Yeah. And those are the ones that people are used to. But they're really, really neat in those 25%. So, so when I got my two lemon trees from Tim Ternese as adults, I purchased his highest yellow lemon male he had ever produced to that point and highest yellow lemon female. The, and uh, and I, I'm not really talking specifically about, you know, Tremaine now, but I, I got those, too. And the female that I got from him was, was uh, two and a half years old and had just had a clutch of eggs. Which, and she was big. She was about 1,000 grams. And she's only two and a half years old. And, uh, I, I, and those were slugs, by the way. <laughs> but the next clutch huh. I bred her, I bred her to that, I bred those, you know, the the related animals had the same parents from different clutch years. But I brought them and I got 17 eggs out of her that, that at three and a half years old, it was their second clutch, and they're all full size eggs, and they were all uh, alive for the most part. But, but by incubation error, I, you know, made some mistakes, and I, you know, I picked them up, and you, you, you do some things that are wrong, and, um, <laughs> In the end, I ended up with with uh, one offspring. <laughs> so, from, from, that, from after that point, it was a train wreck, and I had a lot of mistakes that I made. And the lemons get a reputation. They get, you know, I made a mistake, but it becomes that there's something wrong with the snakes. But I'll but I'll tell you, these two snakes that I had, they were the the coolest chondros that were just so super alert, and you could just tell they're smart. They know they know, they know when you're in the room. I mean, sometimes you got a certain chondro that just seems like it's a little sharper than the rest of them. That's how these things were. They're just really neat. Um, but uh, anyway, so I still had that lemon male, and I ended up retiring the female because she just she had a she somehow got a back kink and just wasn't doing good. So she just she lived to be uh, about ten years old or eleven or something. 
But uh, okay. the lemon male then had a uh, dream by lemon female that I, I bred her to. And I don't know much about the, the dream line other than the cool thing about it is dream, as I understand, was one of these really kind of white-looking snakes before she turned blue. I don't know if people know that, but this is, you know, word of mouth for people, maybe not. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's the story. She, but she, then she turned blue. And I guess people don't know where she really came from. Do, do you guys know where she came from? Maybe it's a pet shop or something. And then, But uh, that, that dream just had some of the most amazing offspring and uh, the ones I got out of out of my dream by lemon female were um, I had I guess I ended up with like six offspring, and I those I ended up sending out um, five of them when I sent out all my snakes on breeding loan just to be grown, and they grew up real pretty and stuff. But um, yeah, the, the, the dream line I'm not real familiar with all that stuff. But the lemons they they went on for years after that after the '97 clutches with the '98. I don't know if Tremaine got a 99, but he had a 2000. That's where somehow mustard started appearing in 2000 out of the London line. I don't know if Tremaine had another female that people didn't know about. But, you know, Tim was from a time when people didn't, when he used to send somebody a picture if you wanted a snake. You know, if you had an expensive snake, he'd send you a picture of it (laughs) in the mail. Not a, you know, in the the physical mail. So. Um, Polaroid, Polaroid or something. Yeah, like a Polaroid. Well, he was pretty <laughs> cool. He had like a full-on, you know, film camera and took a nice picture of the ones he sent to me. But um, yeah, so uh, they went on. There's, there's still some out there, and they're cool. I guess uh, the, the Stewarts, I guess they call them the Barn, is what they call those guys. Right. Uh, they, yep. they still, uh, I guess they were producing some pure lemons still. They're, they're cool. The cool thing about the lemon line is they originated from imports that couldn't have come from Bioc, you know, most likely, because things weren't coming from Bioc yet. So you don't have that long, ongoing color change in their genes. The Tremese told me they, all of his, started changing at four and five months old, and pretty much they're about done by one, and for sure they're done by two. So that's kind of neat. There's no BS. Well, BS are cool, but you know, you throw in that. You know, you're, you're kind of throwing in that long color change gene too. But uh, the neat thing about the lemons is they, they change color quick. Okay? Kind of fun. But uh, other than that, I don't know too much more about them. There is another part of the question from Forrest. He wants to know what makes a an ultra lemon. What is the definition of an ultra lemon? <laughs> That's when you that's when you breed a brother and a sister together that are <laughs> or uh, or the highest yellow. I, I just made that up because I only had one of them. It's kind of a just to be funny, I guess. But I had one. This is just what I call them, and anybody else can call them ultra lemons too if they want to. I don't care. But I had the highest yellow male and the highest yellow female, and I bred them. I had one offspring that that one time. Then I had one other offspring after that. So I call them ultra lemons because there were there were only two of them from the highest yellow lemons, which is kind of cool. So now they're at uh, my female that I had, I kept she the one I produced, and she was uh, she was pretty cool. I think I sent her out, like I said, I'm breeding well in about seven years ago, and I 
I didn't hear much about her after that. And then she ended up, you know, in a pretty debilitated state afterwards. And I just wasn't aware of it, and it just became a problem. So she ended up dying. But uh, okay. Uh, so anyway, so it wasn't. Uh, it's just what happened. So that's where she's gone. But she never produced anything either. So there's, what I did is, is done and over. Unless the, there's a male that I produced too that went to a, a guy named Alex Madrano that had one snake. It was that snake. <laughs> he kept it all those years, and it got real big. And I think it went to Mark Twig, and Mark Twig got it. And I don't know what happened after that, but. Maybe it's still out there somewhere. Okay, so now you were saying the lemons have like a reputation. I've kind of heard this too that they've been they were difficult animals to work with. Maybe easy to keep, but more difficult in regards to breeding. Do is you know just because people have had bad luck with them? Do you think, or is there some truth to that to that myth? Yeah, I, I can't say what other people did, but I know that. Tremezi had a a book. <laughs> it was filled with snakes that were all lemons, and they were awesome, and uh, they were cool. And I I know that what I produced with my snakes and my errors and and the result was my mismanagement. It wasn't the snake. I mean, okay. Yeah, you know, I, I I had that female producing eggs again the next year, and I you know I made mistakes. I bred her too much, and then I. Then I had her producing eggs again 11 months later, you know. So, sure, I'm going to get some slugs. I was pushing her. And I, I was, you know, splitting up my mail with a bunch of other females and, you know, mis- probably mistiming a lot of stuff. But, you know, when you look at one example the, the stewards had with one of their females, that one that's really white and blue, I was talking right. to them, you know, firsthand. And they had some bad results at first. And, and then, then they had some awesome results after that. So, you know, you know what happened? They did something different and got a better result, and I don't think the snake changed. It's the same snake. So you gotta, you gotta, I think sometimes you got to think out of the box and not just, you know, say it's the snake's fault. Just so many right. variables. I mean, granted, there probably are some, some snakes that are harder to breed, you know. If you think about it from a species point of view, view, you know, some pythons aren't as easy to breed as chondros, you know. So I'm sure there's some chondros that we don't quite understand that are a little trickier. We don't know the the trick, you know. They come from a huge range. I mean, you have to imagine if, for example, uh, I mean, some people might tell you they're all the same, but, you know, these, these snakes come from climates that are so drastically different. And here we are, we're, you know, we're, uh, breeding different animals from different regions and mixing them and, you know, how are we to figure out what's best for those animals, you know, for them to reproduce, you know, for the best results. I think that's a lot of what happened with the lemons. I think some people, and I don't know for sure, but they might have experienced some of the things that I did where I made mistakes myself. Right. Right. I know we had, when we had uh, Ben Morell on, and I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but I talked to Ben maybe in person over the phone with this, he had said that uh, when he was doing, when he was working with the Sutherlands who do a lot of ball pythons, he said they would have animals that they had kind of classed as just difficult to breed. And what they found was when they started looking at them with the ultrasound was that the females were developing follicles 
at a point that was different from the rest of their collection. So they were managing the collection with a, a kind of a herd mentality where it's, you know, it's a certain time of the year, all the females should be growing follicles. Um, and so, you know, they do the pairings and then they have animals not produced. And then when they started looking at the ultrasound, they found animals that, you know, were kind of outliers. And so they just use an ultrasound to actually increase their success rate. And once they did that, those, the animals that they had termed as difficult to breed weren't any more difficult than the other animals. They just needed to have a different approach and timing to the pairings to to have them produce. Yeah, excellent example. I think that's the case often with condors because we also we most of us don't have ultrasounds. We're guessing, and right. uh, you know you miss that window of opportunity, or you have you know follicles getting past the size of being able to be viable and they're starting to, to you know, reabsorb while maybe some new ones are growing, you know, and you get, they get kind of mixed up. So, they, you know, you really don't know what's going on in there sometimes unless you can actually look. Right. Right. Uh, David or Matt, do you have anything to add to, to the lemon tree stuff or the dream stuff that maybe you guys have some personal experience with? Um, not a lot. I, I wish I had more experience with it. Uh, I do think that, uh, from what I remember uh, about the uh, the lemons that the Stewarts had, uh, I think that that was the the ticket in the long run, in, in the short term, was that they found uh, a key to one of their snakes that was showing some sign uh, of when it was ready to, to mate, and I think it's that follicle, whole follicle situation that uh, you were talking about earlier. So, um, you know, I think there's some merit to that. There's something else, too. I, you know, I, I I did send out my snakes on breeding loan, and one of the guys they went to, I mean, I, I thank him, you know, greatly for all that he did for me. He took care of my snakes for all those years, and he did awesome. Um, he found that the the lemon-related animals, if you, when he got the male in on them, before that female started shifting color, um you had much better results with viable eggs. Where if the female, this is what we observed anyway, we didn't have an ultrasound, but if that female is yoking up follicles and you know, she's lightening up and she's, those follicles are growing, and that's, and I, in my opinion, some of the, the yellow that leaves animals is because follicles are full of that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, dietary substance that's yellow. It's pulling out of the scales. There's fat and oil. And if they're changing color already, those, those follicles are probably getting, you know, bigger past the point where you might not be getting the best results. Basically, what we found is if you get the, the male in there before she starts shifting color, you're getting a better result. Okay. All right. Uh, have, we've got another question. Go, go ahead, David. I have a couple of uh, 50%. Well, uh, you have a couple of uh, 25 and and 150% lemon tree male in my collection. And he's uh, he's been a good breeder. I have him actually. I'm swapping him between two two of my females, and he's been uh, courting them both rigorously. I've, I've noted multiple copulations with both females. Um, one of them started shifting color. I, I can't tell if she's gone opaque or if that's a hormonal shift. So I haven't, uh, I haven't had the best, uh, 
luck thus far this season with all of my pairings that I had planned. But uh, but yeah, so I, I uh, other than that, I'm hoping to to demonstrate some some good uh, fertility with with uh, the lemon tree animals I'm working with. So we'll see. Awesome. That's fantastic. Sounds cool. What what do you have, what do you have again for the lemon animal? One of our, the males I have it's uh oh it's O S it was the the animals that Sandro DePinto produced um so it's out of the pedigree and lemon tree on the other I don't have the pedigree in front of me so I'm not quite sure uh, you know just off memory where which lemon trees whether it was Happy Jack or Actually, I think Happy Jack is in the in the pedigree for the um, for the Socrates Pastella male, uh, the Francisco male that produced the 2010 um, clutch uh, tiger stripe clutch for Rico, of which I have two females. Um, so those are are some of the the females that have uh, have lemon tree in the pedigree. Uh, I think a couple generations up. So. Those are the well, animals. That's that's pretty, pretty cool. I'm looking forward to hearing the results of that. Yeah, Dov, yeah. Me, me too. Me too. <laughs> and I've got one lemon tree, uh, half lemon tree male that I'm, I'm breeding this year with one of my black pearl females. And uh, this will be his first year, so it ought to be an interesting pairing as well. Cool. What percent lemon tree is that one, Matt? It's 50%. It's, it's actually the it's one that Brooke uh, Burnson. Uh, produced a couple years back, and he came from uh, the off. The uh, parents were from from the ones from the barn, so uh, they were actually pure, oh, wow. pure lemons in there. So very cool. Very nice. Looking very nice. forward to that. Okay. My male. Hey uh, Craig, we got have another uh, question for you. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. From the uh, from the chat room, and it's from David. It's uh, a forum member, David D. And he wants to know, are you planning to breed your condors that you have now? Yeah, I got, they're breeding, they were breeding a couple of months ago. <laughs> I got the, okay. I got, like I, I mean, like I said, it sounds funny, but I have two green tree pythons. <laughs> one of them is a, it's the one I produced. It's a 75% lemon, 25% green. And then I have a, a snake that uh, Terry Phillips produced. And it's an awesome okay. uh, tri- Tri-color, sort of real nice blue markings on it. You know, she's she was little, kind of little when I got her, but I, I want to see what happens. I, I put the male on her, and he's all over, and I haven't weighed her, but she's not as big as some condors I have. And if they have eggs, it's going to be fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna let her maternally incubate them, um, and you know, see how it goes. I'm gonna try some some new stuff and try to learn as much as I can. Um, it's, it's it's a fun time, you know. I, I got my daughter here. She's she loves the snakes and she's six. You know, she likes to hold nice. them and everything. And it's gonna, it's gonna be really fun. And if we can get those eggs out of that female this year, um, we'll see. Well, it's a good test too to see how my crazy temperature thing goes with eggs. If she has <laughs> okay. Eggs. But, well, <laughs> now, if she gets on that maternal clutch, I'm gonna leave her right on there cold at night too. I want to see what happens. And, I, and honestly, I don't think it's going to hurt her if she does it. It's what they do, and I'm not – they aren't showing any problems. But, yeah, they got two snakes. They're breeding. 
they they stop breeding now, but they bred for a couple months. And the male's uh, machine, you know, he's just all over her all the time, and there was. And now she's still eating them. I don't know if she's doing now. I can peek at her here. She's right in front of me. I don't know if she's. I, and I just keep them together all the time. Um, and she's she's feeding still. She's you know she's giving you the, you know the eye when you get close to the enclosure. What she's gonna show your arm off. So yeah, it's so it <laughs> happens. I'm breeding them now. Excellent. So this leads oh, into the thing, next question. One thing about the, I was going to say about that male though, he was uh, he was a red hatchling. That's kind of cool. You know, he's a seventy-five percent lemon that was a red hatchling. Wow. It's kind of kind of different because you know, like the dream female was uh, red uh, red dominant, but the, you know her offspring being bred with uh, a lemon, when dream lemon is the one I I got that my you know my uh, but they, uh, I guess usually you don't get dominant red animals out of red yellow pairings. But you have red red hatchlings. I don't know what the final word is on that topic, but um, anyway, this one's a red hatchling, so it's kind of neat. So we'll see what happens. Good deal. So James Gabriel, another forum member here on the MVF, he wants to know your system for cycling your animals. Specifically, when do you introduce the male? which I think you may have just answered it. And also I want to know how you keep temps until the female lays her eggs. Well, you know, over the years, probably like a lot of us, that we, we try a lot of stuff. And I, I can't say that anything I could tell you would be an advantage to you to, to try to duplicate. But what I, what I found is when you have nice, healthy animals that you take care of, and you pay attention to and keep clean and uh, care for, you you end up with nice results, usually. If you get sloppy, um, you know, don't pay attention to things, it, you're kind of rolling the dice. you gotta, you got to kind of pay attention to what's going on. you got to, I don't know if it's necessarily what cycling temperature you're using, but there, I think there's an average snake temperature that is a big trigger to follicle development. And I, the average snake temperature, I wouldn't doubt if it only takes a few, a few degrees to do it. But, like, for example, now, um, my, like in the morning, the air temperature on them is probably 66. And the snakes are about 68. And then by the end of the day, they're, um, you know, 82 to 83, or 81, 82, 83. Um, in the summer, just naturally, um, they just sit in the room, and they're probably, you know, 78 in the morning and, you know, 85 at the end of the day. And I think that's too hot, honestly. I think it's kind of pushing it. But that's that's the split. You know, I got a thought it in the summer, and I thought it was in the winter. And I'm, that's how I'm kind of trying it this time. In the past, when I've had success with, Controlling pythons, I don't think they're they're all that much different from you know you know Burmese and or even like rainbow bows and dumerals and things like that. I think you, basically the the routine you use is you think should always have a little bit of a night drop in my opinion. But when you come into lowering temperature for the winter months, which is usually when you can do it, or if you have ability to do it not in the winter, you want to do it gradually through about six weeks to get to your low point and if that's happened you start to go back up again. You know? So um that was the old school way. 
that people used to do it, but it, it seems to work. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, you get some control that way anyway. What, what do you guys do? David, go ahead. Um, yeah, I tend to, uh, kind of like Greg said, I, I just gradually lower the temperatures um, from where my nighttime drops are tend to be, you know, two, three degrees throughout the year as a maintenance. Uh, I start dropping it, you know, one to two degrees per week over the course of, you know, three weeks or so, uh, after which, you know, I'll, I'll introduce the male. I, I would be doing the same, you know, one to two te- degree temperature drop with the male at the same time that I begin with the female. So, again, after about three weeks when I introduce the male, I might not have already hit my time low at that point. I might continue to drop one or two degrees per week for the next, you know, two to three weeks, depending upon how far I'm dropping. Um, These days I only drop to, you know, around 75 degrees for my nighttime low. That's about what I target as as my lowest. Um, So, you know, the animals are typically put together, introduced about three weeks, three to four weeks after I begin my uh, my breeding night nighttime drops. And as David, far as hey David, are you keeping your are you keeping your daytime temperatures the same and only adjusting nighttime drops? Correct. Yes, that's correct. Okay. okay. And then uh, once once my females ovulate, I. Uh, you know, again, like Greg said, it's it's about reading your animals and and making adjustments accordingly. If I, I I do tend to bring my nighttime lows up a little bit so that uh, you know they're maybe more like around 78. If I see that my female is constantly seeking heat, you know, I might gradually raise it a little bit warmer so that my nighttime low is you know maybe only 81 relative to my my set point of 85, um, which, you know, I, I think uh, there is some very reasonable uh, debate to be had as far as how hot we're keeping them, and, and especially with the radiant heat panels uh, with regards to them, you know, potentially sucking uh, moisture out of our animals. But... Uh, for now, that, that's what uh, what I've been doing. That might change Matt, tomorrow. How about, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, how about you? Uh, I do it a little bit differently, uh, but I think I'm, I'm getting the same result. I'm, I don't keep track of it real specifically, but um, I have about a 10-degree uh, a uh, difference in my nighttime temperatures and daytime temperatures year-round. But down here in Texas, you know, during the summer, we hardly get, you know, uh, below <laughs> 75 at all during the summer. So um, right. it, it really really varies a lot. Um, I start putting mine together in October, and I just – I'll put them in and test and see if the male and female are compatible. If they are, I'll leave them in and uh, just leave them in until I see ovulation for the most part. If I'm running, if I do a couple of, um, you know, if I use a male for a couple of females, uh, you know, I definitely will take them out periodically for uh, for that purpose and feeding. 
but other than that, I just I leave them together um, until I see the ovulation, and once I see that, I'll I'll pull the males. Um, so I guess you know when it comes down to it, I'm I'm kind of doing the same thing they are, but just not as structured, I guess. Right. I, I'm not structured. I just when it gets to be winter, I just let it be winter because it's colder. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cold, so why not? Right, and I guess structure is the wrong word, but down here, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at the mercy of the weather. It's, uh, it uh, can be um, pretty slow to, to cool off down here. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point with weather being different. Here in Arizona, we see, uh, and we were talking about dew point temperature earlier, but that's, that's basically your starting point of how you care for your chondros. We see dew point temperatures ranging from the Negative Fahrenheit. So my, I mean, in the winter months, you might even have like a negative eight degree Fahrenheit dew point, you know. And then wow. in the summers, you get up, you'll have some of the seventies. So you you got to kind of wonder if you're just uh, doing the same thing for the whole year with a, a husbandry routine. Is is that which which side of it's right? You know, you know what I mean. You know, like mm-hmm. I kind of oftentimes wonder. Like I used to wonder. Is it that one season is better when it's drier, or is it better when it's more humid? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure yet. But I think what it comes down to is this average dew uh, point temperature. I think it should be in about the 70s. I mean, that's about where I think it should be if you have snakes that are, you know, site temperatures up and down. Well, average body temperatures say that are 78 degrees through a 24-hour period. I think the a dew point in the you know low to mid seventies is about what's viable. That's, that's my guess right now. I'm not sure yet because there's not much data on that, but that's my opinion. And uh, when, but then when you incorporate also, say like somebody mentioned a, a heat panel, you put a heat panel in that cage. Let's say for example you have a probe hanging down on the perch where the snake is sitting and below the heat panel, and it it you have a day night, and it comes on in the morning, and it goes from uh, 75 to 89 in six minutes. And it doesn't seem right. I don't know what I mean. But so I think part of it might be the things might be a little too rapid with, uh, you know, temperatures sometimes with, with these snakes. And I don't know if that's what causes some of the issues we see sometimes, but I think it's something to look into. Yeah, Greg, just on that note, um, one of the really nice features of the new Herbstat 4s that I use, um, and I'm not sure if they've incorporated into some of the other models of the Herbstat thermostats, but they do let a, it's a, uh, gosh, what, um, ramping, that's what it is. So when you do incorporate a nighttime drop, you can actually uh, set a ramping period of 15 minutes, 30 minutes, I'm not sure how expansive of a, of a time increment you can set. I typically do 30 minutes where from your nighttime to your daytime, it'll actually slowly ramp up during that period of time. So that yeah, kind cool. of, that's, yeah, like, that's probably yeah. a nice idea, especially for if you have a, yeah. a significant night drop. That sounds really cool. Yeah. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, some of those uh, stark changes, um, you know, who likes that, right? 
Who knows, though? Maybe it doesn't make any difference. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. It's hard, hard to say because yeah. there aren't tests on those things like that, but it's, it's, it's a thought. Right. Hey, Greg, I have another question for you, and it's kind of a lighthearted question, and I don't know the answer to this, but it's okay. from Barry Thomas, and he wants to know, he's a Moralia Viridis Forum member, and he said, it's a silly question, but I've always been curious. Why is there a picture of a dog in a cape on the banner? <laughs> so when I was when I was a single man, I had a friend that was my dog, Verbal. You know, I'm, I'm a sentimental guy, and... Uh, Halloween one year, you know, well, first of all, the years previous, the dog would greet the children at the door when they come for their candy for Halloween and scare them. So this particular year that I took that image, I dressed the dog in a super dog costume and took his picture. Uh, he died, and I'm uh, a man of God, so I put a little cross by him, and I just did a memory for me. It's a nice memory, and he's there. He's, he, in years ago, you used to be able to click on the dog and it would tell you that story, but I took that out. But that's what it's there for, just as a memory. And, and by the way, in the banner, every picture in that banner, if, if you look really close of the snakes, there's the names of the people who own them. And those were the original people that I invited to the forum. And those wow. are the only people I invited to Morelia Virtus Forum. I haven't, I, well, you know, not... Who I have solicited since that. Those were the original people that I invited to the forum and asked if I could use those pictures. A couple of the pictures are mine. But, wow. Yeah, but you, but you got like, uh, um, this guy is Rob Worrell. Remember Rob Worrell? He's a, he's a neat guy. Yep. You know, and there's he's a little red hatch in there. And, um, Tim, Morris is on, Tim Morris is on there. Yeah, yeah. And Bradley, right? Ed Bradley is the, the coolest guy. He's, he's one of the few guys I visited. A couple of times, he's the guy has a wealth of knowledge, you know, and um, he's an example of what you cannot get off the internet. You cannot learn things like you can learn things from people like Ed Bradley on the internet. Um, and I, um, he's the coolest guy. And I'll tell you what, anything he tells you, it's right. The guy has <laughs> so many years of experience. I'm sure there's other guys out there like that too that don't use the internet. Um, and probably other guys who use it and are, know everything too. But Ed is the coolest guy. But he's he's on that that biak in the top left corner. When I saw that female at his house, um, it's awesome, awesome snake, incredible. Yeah, but, yeah. Those yeah. are the those are the original people I invited to MBS, and that dog was mine. He's dead, but <laughs> he's a cool dog. Very cool, very cool. Um, so just want you guys to know we have approximately. 13 minutes left of on-air time. Now, we will continue for another hour after that, and we'll record. Um, and hopefully you guys will stick around, because I think Bill and I have some more questions. We'd love to have everyone's input on. But before we get cut off live, for the people who are listening to us, um, and I'd like to start with you, Matt, because there's a question directly about you in the chat room. Um, exactly. Okay. So if you could tell me maybe who you are, how can someone get a hold of you if they have a question for you? Do you have a website or do you have an email address? And then we'll go to Greg and then we'll do David. And then uh, we'll continue the uh we'll, we'll continue chatting if everyone's okay with that. 
Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I think the best way to get hold of me, I don't have a website uh, yet, or I'm not sure if I ever will, but uh, for right now, uh, through the forum um, is probably the best way. And then my email is uh, chondro2, and then this is the number two, at yahoo.com. That's my email address. Matt, what is your screen name on MVF? Um, it's just Matt Morris, my name. Matt Morris. Okay. All right. Great. Perfect. Yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And Greg, how how yeah. can someone get a hold of you if they would like to have a question or maybe a comment for you or or what or whatever they might want to chat with you about? Anytime you want to get a hold of me, um, you you can click on just click on the Relia username there, and you can uh, send me a message through the forum. It's it's pretty okay. handy. Um, and, you know, if if you want my phone number, um, I, I don't even care if I give it to you on the interview here. It's, it's, uh, don't text message me. I hate text messages. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So if, if uh, somebody wants to call, they can. They're welcome to call. It's 480-766-8829. And, uh, you know, I don't mind. If you want to call me, I'm happy to talk. I don't, don't text message me because, you know, it's, it takes too long. But, yeah, call me or send a message through the forum. Really agree. This is my username on there. Unless I happen to be logged in as Greg Schrader or my secret username, Condoro, which I only have two posts on, or three or something. But, uh, yeah, just uh, message off the forum or give me a call. Great. Fantastic. How about you, David? Um, My... Business name Morelia Addiction is also my username. Uh, it's also my Facebook page. Um, my email is info at moreliaaddiction.com. Um, and between the forum, I, I mean, I'm pretty accessible, whether it's through Facebook, uh, messaging on Facebook, or personal messages through uh, the MVF, which I'm routinely on all day long. And uh, email as well. So I'm more than more than happy to help out however I can. Um, people often drop by or ask ask questions or ask for input, and as we'll tell you, I'm tough to get off the phone once you get me on. <laughs> uh, I like to talk as much as I like to write, so encounters are, are an easy subject to, to talk and write about. So. Definitely. All right. Great. So, uh, Craig had mentioned a, a topic that Bill and I wanted to actually talk about this evening. Um, and so it's red dominant chondros. Um, maybe, uh, Maybe, Greg, we'll start with you. Maybe if you could just maybe give us the, what your definition is of a, a red dominant chondro, if if you if you want to. Well, absolutely. I, I, it's just an opinion. Um, I, I believe that the the, the hatchlings, the, if you look at them, I mean logically, from different regions, they they look different. First of all, you have different patterns, and you not only have red and yellow, but you have different shades of red and different shades of markings on yellow hatchlings. You know, so it's not just red or yellow. 
Um, I, I believe that the uh, this is an opinion. The the red hatchlings, it's a pattern relation. I don't think it's just because of the red. I mean, because you can see that oftentimes, not always, but usually the pattern is different too on a red hatchling. You know, you have the open saddle shapes instead of the little crossbars in some races, or um, or some they even kind of look the same, they're just different colors. Then you got all those little speckles on them too. Um, I think there's actually um, color and maybe even two uh, shades of red that apply on top of each other. One could be a pattern and one's a, a color and they're pigments. You have uh, yellow is a xanthophore. If, you know, I'm not an expert on this topic, but the, the xanthophores, I, that yellow is probably right underneath a lot of those uh, red hatchlings too. You know, and now, now in the middle of those uh, markings, they're oftentimes missing the xanthophores and they're almost pigmentless. Sometimes they're yellow too. There's a lot of variation, but um, red dominant, you get one of, if it's a red dominant animal, it's going to have all red hatchlings. Okay? And I don't know if it's because of, you know, an on or off gene or if it's two genes or four genes, but you, you get a red dominant animal like uh, Mr. Blue or Green or Kirk Mills uh, snake used to have that the snake keeper has now, Arctic Blue, like those kind of snakes. Or some of these melanistic animals that have all red hatchlings. Um, you, whatever you breed, you get a red hatchling. If you go and you breed that thing to another red dominant animal, you know, it's, it's the bomb. If you want black snakes and blue snakes, it's probably your best shot. I, mean, I don't know if that's for sure, but that's my opinion. Um, I don't have enough hands-on results to say, hey, that's what I did, but looking at what other people do, you can kind of look through stuff. I, I remember I used to uh, and I, uh, I used to go through some of the web pages and look at the hatchlings people had when people weren't talking about this red dominant stuff so much. But you, you kind of look at it and you kind of start to say, yeah, it kind of makes sense, you know? Um, and the results they got later when you watch them over the years. But uh, that's my opinion. Anyway. I think it's a pattern relation, and I think there's layers of red uh, in addition to um, just being red or yellow. And then also, I, I wouldn't doubt if super blues lack much of the yellow underneath the red, and they even have a, a, a dysfunction in the, the, the synthesized portion of xanthophores, not the dietary portion. But uh, I think they probably have a, some sort of dysfunction or, or a, a dysfunction that occurs later in life. Interesting. It's a great explanation. I, I don't know. It's kind of kind of throwing it out there. I could go on about uh, go on about it, but there was a post that uh, that re- recently came up. I can't remember. I believe it was on the forum about blue pigments, and it completely it has sort of shaken my foundation about the way that, uh, truthfully, I, I it's so. It's a very difficult concept to, to grasp from a biological standpoint, the, the pigments and the genetics aspect of it. But in this article, it was essentially saying that there is not a single vertebrate produces blue pigment. And I said, well, well wait a minute. So a peacock, you know, uh, a hyacinth macaw, uh, you know, some of the blue, blue fish, 
I mean, they don't produce blue pigment. I, I don't get it. And it went on. I think to, it's a, a refraction of light from the the, rat, the ratifors, I guess they call them, which is a it's just like a set thing that changes the way the visible light looks to us. You know what I mean? Where the blue is probably a melanophore. Where and then of course the yellow and the orange and stuff are the xanthophores, but. I think it's because of the iridophores why they look blue. Got it. Okay. So it was all based on structural, uh, structural, well, whatnot in terms of why the perception is blue. But uh, it, it continues to be a very uh, difficult concept. I mean, they really try to, to delve into the color as it, as it relates to the chondros, but. I think the explanation you just gave, Craig, definitely uh, sounds reasonable for sure. Yeah. And the other thing is that, as uh, we're talking about blue, um, people talk about this hormonal blue, you know, which is probably, I don't know what hormone is that, but um, the snakes are blue. I mean, not all chondros that have eggs turn that awesome blue color. I mean, it's there's something to the, the genetics of the snake, too. It's wider turning blue. And some of them, you know, they stay blue. They're awesome. But uh, it's, uh, like, I, I can't believe they call a snake like dream hormonal blue. And that's, this, this is wrong. I don't, I don't get it. I know it's the definition that we use, but um, the, the snake's got something going on that's not just because it's had a bunch of eggs. Um, and then also, like, the, the layers, they're not just like blue or or not. It's They're either blue because they're missing yellow or it's layered on top of other colors. Sometimes, I don't know if you guys ever had, you know, snakes pass and you end up cutting them open, but some of those snakes, they're all black on the inside, even if they're green on the outside. And those, mm. those are the melanophore. Have you guys seen that? They're in like the back of the throat and stuff. Um, but, you know, those melanophores are they can be migratory. They they can move through the scale cell uh, pigments and things. So um, there's there's a lot to it. I mean, just because they're blue or or not, this is, there's there's a lot of a lot of genetics in that stuff. And but if they are blue, I, I I think it's it's almost always got a lot to do with genetics, unless they have some sort of dietary dysfunction which removes their yellow pigments. Kind of like you know the uh, the flamingos are all pink. If you if you would feed the chondros a bunch of yellow dye, they'd probably turn all your blue snakes green. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't do that. Right, That'd be a I, good experiment for you to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, next time I see the blue, I guess I'm going to you know, load it up with yellow dye. And see <laughs> no, I didn't do that. But, uh, yeah, you've got to think, think about it. Yeah, the yellow, the yellow can synthesize, too. It's not always dietary, so... Um, a lot of things. There's probably guys that know a lot more about this stuff than I'll ever know, but it's a few things I've read anyway that kind of makes sense. Is that you, Matt? Uh, I don't really know too much about the genetic part of it. Uh, I just, you know, I, I did have uh, an experience. I did have one, um, what we thought was a a red dominant male Wymena. It was a really beautiful Wymena, and um, it was bred with uh, a friend of mine, Andrew Amon's um, Maruki he had, 
And the previous year, that Maruki had given an all-yellow clutch. And then that year, she bred with this Wymena, and uh, they turned out to be all red. Uh, but we never really, you know, we were we were talking about maybe pursuing breeding some of those offspring with, uh, you know, back to the male and seeing what happened. But nothing ever materialized out of it, and the male got sold and uh, just, you know, kind of kind of lost it there. But it would be an interesting experiment to to follow that line, you know, once you find a red dominant male and see what happens with it. Buddy, what about uh, what about locality chondros over in Indonesia? I mean, are there there are certain uh, locality types that, uh, when bred together, produce only red clutches? I, I mean, I know that's the case that produce only yellow uh, babies. I can't say for sure, Bill. I, I know that uh, the good example that I'm I'm aware of is the guy the Stewarts bought a Biox you know, maybe five or six years ago now that they named Diablo and um he was a Bioc type and apparently everything that he's been you know, been bred with has produced red babies. Um and I guess, you know it goes back to, you know, I guess what is the definition of a you know red a red dominant chondro? Is is it an animal? Is it a you know, a male or a female chondro that produces, you know, 75% of the neonates will be red, uh, or it, is it across the board? Does it need to be 100%? Um, and so I really can't say about the localities. Obviously, they're going to be, I guess, the, the northern, the localities from the northern part of the range, uh, the Azorius species, I guess, if we're allowed to say the A word here. Uh, but you know, I often see people post, you know, they'll they'll get a clutch from an animal and someone commented on a, a clutch that I had several years ago, um, you know, 12 babies hatched and they were all red. And they're like, oh, that, that means your male is red dominant. And I was not really willing to say that. I was like, well, you know, 12 babies doesn't mean that that snake is a red dominant animal. I think you might need a larger uh, sample size. And you know, fair, you know, using various females to to sure. prove that, and and you know, that's that's just in my my personal experience and in my opinion on that. What do you think about that, David? You think there needs to be like, you know, is it? Do you, are we jumping to a conclusion if we say that you know an animal has one clutch and the entire clutch is red? That you know that animal's a, a red dominant animal. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. I mean, without uh, multiple breedings, I mean, to me, to, to be able to make that that sort of a statement, I'd want to see multiple breedings to um, an animal that itself was a yellow neonate, uh, and to several breedings to yellow neonate animals uh, produce all red babies before I would, you know, be able to be comfortable suggesting it was all. Uh, a red dominant animal would only produce red babies. Um, going back to the locality question, I think the one one locality animal that that I that always comes to mind when you think red dominant or only red is the phenotype that's associated with the cyclop mountain uh, chondros. Um, okay. I know, you know, more recently you tend you you can see yellow animals that are claimed to be cyclops. Uh, locality, um, but I guess in my mind that sort of 
diffused blue um, that that's almost kind of a, very uh, reminiscent of the these Vinsky line um, blue animals that we're seeing now. Uh, traditionally, that, that those cyclops animals always were were on a red uh, red neonate pattern. But uh, but yeah, I think you, you always have to be difficult about jumping to conclusions, and and, and I think uh, in so many ways that's uh, been been a lesson that uh, has been brought up and, and thrown in my face with with uh, some of uh, the things that I've done uh, or, or claims that uh, I was hoping to to prove out that didn't didn't pan out for me. Um, but I do have actually I have a female that uh it's my female Kinley that is uh was produced by Dale Jewell here in Chicago and he had a clutch with her prior to selling her to me that he bred to a yellow neonate animal and she only produced red red babies for him. Uh and then I produced uh an entire clutch of red babies but the the male that I bred her to was himself a red neo, so it's kind of hard to to maybe draw much from that. Um, had he also been yellow, I'd be more comfortable saying, yeah, she's she's likely a red dominant animal. But um, maybe sometime in the, in the future, she's she's uh, an O eight, so she should have a couple breeding breeding seasons left in her. I'll hope to maybe uh, get her paired up with a yellow. Neonate animal. See if if maybe she only produces reds. Yeah, yeah. Keep me posted on that since I have one of the one of those animals. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like definitely. To know. <laughs> yeah, that should be interesting. And, then, and you know, you know, I think here's a question that that I'm not sure if has ever been directly uh, spoken about, which is are the offspring of a red dominant. Have uh, they been red dominant too? I think from a genetic standpoint, you'd expect no. them to be right. They're not. You breed them to they're not, so they're... animal. They're, they don't. You don't have. To, you don't probably get very many red dominant animals on. You might, but I don't know for sure. But you give a good shot at. Like for example, this animal I have here, this male, which is the seventy-five percent lemon, twenty-five percent green. The mm-hmm. mother of him was an offspring from dreams. He was half dream, half lemon. And obviously the lemon was yellow. And when I bred her to a lemon male, I figured they're going to be half yellow and half red. It's the thing's not red dominant. It, it, that's what they were. And I don't know if it always works out that easy, but I don't, it, maybe it isn't that simple, but um, it's, if you breed your red dominant animal to a yellow yellow hatchling other mate, you're, you're probably not going to get a bunch of red dominant animals. It's just like mm-hmm. Kirk Mills when he bred Arctic Blue to his Miraki. You know, they're all red, but none of those animals that were produced are probably red dominant. I just can't imagine they would be. Um, but, I don't, you know, it's like you said, you don't know for sure until you test a lot of stuff. Uh, right. Funny story. I got a funny story. <laughs> I had posted this before. I, think it's, I, think, I do think it's funny. Back years and years ago, um, there was this exporter, which was, I don't know what his real deal was, and I wouldn't want to discredit anybody, but 
he put together a web page of the, when the Wamanas were hot. He, he, I was emailing the guy, and he said, what do you think if I separate these into several localities? And I said, well, you know, are they different? And he said, oh, yes, they're different. So he made a web page, and all the all the uh, Bukandinis, and I had posted this before. I hope I'm not repeating it too often, but all the Bukandinis on this guy's webpage that were adults, they called them the breeders, which, you know, they're obviously all these wild-caught animals. They were all obviously and clearly red hatchlings because you can see the big saddles with the blue shapes around them. They called them Bukandinis. Then the next group he had he called the Kalilas, which, you know, these are all really little cities around there. And they looked just like the Bukandinis, except they had less blue. But they were still obviously red hatchlings. Um, and then he had the leaders, which, you know, it's, those were all, they were all yellow. And so they were like, okay, that's fine. So every, he probably had 20 or 30 of each locale on his webpage showing them. So every Bukandini was red, every Kalila was red. I'm not, I'm not Kalila, but it's a Karabaga, I'm sorry. Kalila, he never released the name of. There was another group that had white in the saddles. We picked the, we had the, all these red animals that he separated into Bukandini, Karabaga, and Kalila. Then he had the Lears that were all yellow. Anyway, long story short, he gets a clutch of eggs and hatches them, and the hatchlings are red and yellow. (laughs) 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 And these were, these were, I was like, okay, now, if you have 30 adults of this kind here and they're all red, that doesn't make sense to have, like, all of a sudden some red, yellow babies. So I, I think a lot of these locales do have red and yellow babies. Just that somehow along the way the red ones become really popular and then they get kind of marked as that's what they are. Um, and I'm not a, a field study guy or something, but, you know, logically it just doesn't make sense that all of a sudden his first group of and, – and obviously he finds a wild-caught rabbit female, you know. So I, I had pictures of all these females that were in bags that had a bunch of newspaper shreds that were they had laid their eggs in these bags full of newspaper shreds. And then they hatch them. You know, he showed me his incubator and stuff. But, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say for sure what the right answers are to all this stuff. I agree. It's uh it's a learning experience and the more you're exposed the 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 more knowledge you have. Um Bill had a question. Did you want to ask your question, Bill? Um well, uh before we get off the topic, uh, I think we were all trying to figure out if if a yellow to a yellow neo had ever produced a red neo. Is anybody aware of a of that happening? There's a there's a post no. on MBS that that occurred, but it doesn't seem to be um, typical. Okay. So I I I don't know. I, I just, if you start crossing locales and stuff, anything could happen. Or if you you know if you you know you got to realize that these these designer animals are still chondros, but really have you know crossed them around quite a bit. So I. I, yeah, I'm sure things can happen, but it's probably not probable. It's probably possible, not probable. That's my, my guess, anyway. Okay. And then I think the next thing uh, that uh, Buddy and I wanted to hit on were some opinions about, uh, and David, I think I'll probably ask, maybe ask you this first since you've uh, created the Facebook page uh, for buying 
U.S. captive bred uh, chondros, a classified uh, page on Facebook, which is, from what I can tell, been a very uh, popular uh, place. A lot of people go there and look look to look to buy chondros as well as going to the um, the MVF. And my question is 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 buying U.S. captive bred chondros versus uh, baby chondros that have been bred in captivity, but uh, on the Indonesian farms and Bushmaster, I guess, is the classic example of that. So, uh, David, maybe if you could give us some input on uh, the differences between those two animals, is it appropriate for a first-time chondro or a, a new chondro keeper to to purchase a, a Bushmaster? Uh, farmed animal that's been bred in captivity and then shipped here, or are they better off getting uh, a U.S. Uh, bred animal, in your opinion? I mean, I think what, even even before the origins of the animal, I think one of the, the bigger factors for success is having done the research prior to getting your first animal. Uh, I think sort of one of the uh, things I had come up with uh, in the guide was that uh, the chondros are not learn-on-the-fly type of uh, pythons. You're you're less likely to have success with them by just kind of learning on the fly. Um, So I think that, I don't think it can be ever stated enough that doing the research, understanding those specific husbandry requirements within a range, um, and just kind of getting your, your... your habitat set up, your temperatures dialed in uh, prior to making an impulse purchase, whether it's farm-bred or captive-bred, I think that's probably one of, going to be one of the biggest determinants for success or failure. After that, yeah. I, I say it's going to be the after-sale support. When you make an impulse purchase from you know, uh, a table at a show that has, 15 different types of reptiles at it, you, you can basically write off getting any support after that, that sale's made. Um, of course, we tend to equate after-sale after support with the breeders because these are the guys, like all of us on the, on the line here, that we do this because we love doing it. And anything that comes after that love and that thrill is just gravy. Um, it's just icing on a cake. So with, I think where Bushmaster has evolved with Ryan Burke being that main contact point in the United States, with Ryan being, you know, chondros or otherwise an exceptional human being, a stand-up guy, a great person, uh, trustworthy, and then on top of that, him, you know, being a breeder or, you know, working in hand with Jason Stevens breeding, you, you know, right. when you're buying when you're buying those farm-bred animals through a reputable source like that, and that's something that, you know, we, we reference several times over in the Husbandry Guide. Um, when you're buying from a reputable source like that, you're going to get that after support, you're going to be purchasing an animal that that sort of chain of custody has been followed, you know, from Indonesia into 
Colorado to your collection. Right. Uh, I, I think where the danger comes in, and I mean, it's, it's it's a little bit of a slippery slope, I guess, because I don't I don't tend tend to understand the entire operation, um, but where animals come in from Bushmaster in, I, I assume. Good health as the and I, and I guess I'm referring really to the neonates, the the smallest the neonates that are yeah. truly uh, captive bred on the farm. I mean, yeah. My understanding is Ryan's going to sit on them for a, at least a little, you know, a few meals and get them established before because because that's part of what you know he cares about also. Um, whereas some of the other people who are, you know, quote unquote, flipping those bush faster animals maybe are not using that same diligence to ensure their customers are, are receiving animals that are going to be in the best, uh, put them in the best situation to have success with. Um, even though they might have come from the same point originally, I think it's the way they're handled once they leave that facility, how much time they're given to acclimate uh, into the, the, the different points of uh you know, import or, or different collections, be it Ryan's, be it the next, uh, you know, wholesaler's collection. Um, you know, condos tend to stress out when they're being rehomed and they're being moved and they're being, uh, you know, uh, exposed to temperature extremes and shipping and, and whatnot. And I think that's where right. where the danger comes in a little bit more. But I think now, you know, with some of these farm-bred animals, when they're from a reputable source, when you ask the right questions, and that's another thing that's, that's presented in the guide, when you're equipped with the knowledge and the information, then in the end, I, I think you're going to be putting yourself in a good position to, uh, to, to have success. Okay. Very, very good. Uh, I think, uh, I think you're, uh, you're spot on, uh, Matt or Buddy or Greg, do you guys would you like to chime in uh, and offer any opinions on it? Yeah, he's he's probably right. Um, the majority of the time, there. The thing is, the people that are going to buy a, a chondro and let it wither and die, not always, but oftentimes the people that are not that don't have the best interest in the animal and they haven't studied up or asked the right questions. They're going to buy the one that's the cheapest. <laughs> they always are. Right. They're never going to stop until these animals don't exist, and I, I don't think they're going to stop existing. So, right. I mean, those are, that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's I mean, you can give the same guy a you know a thousand dollar captive bred snake for free, and he's he's probably going to do the same thing to it that he would have done to the two hundred dollar snake, and it's probably not going to succeed either. Um, yep. And that's not 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 saying that in a derogatory way, but that's kind of what happens. We've been watching the cycle forever on the forum, and I don't. It's just it's it's hard. I, I hope I think the the key like was mentioned is you gotta ask questions, you know, because people don't really even see these animals. Like years ago, I used to you know go look at the thing before you bought it, unless you buy it at a show. But a lot of stuff just gets shipped. You know, they're shipping them all over the place, and they're they're buying. It's like uh, shopping on Amazon. You're buying whatever's the cheapest. So right. that's that's the challenge, you know. And um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's going to keep happening. And all you can do is give them provide a source for education, like uh, 
these guys have put out there, which I think is really cool. You know, it, I'm pretty resistant to change, and I, you know, I'm I'm glad these guys did this, and it's it's a cool thing. I mean, it's, it's going to help if people look good and ask the questions, like they said. Very good, Matt. Do you have a Do you have a thought or opinion or on the subject? Oh well, I <laughs> I uh, really agree with uh, pretty much everything that Greg and David said. Uh, obviously, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that um, you know a person getting into this needs to to weigh the the morals and ethics of the person he's getting them from. And uh, people like Ryan, you know, they they uh, they care about the snakes. And you know they're gonna make sure that it's a well-adjusted and an easy uh, an easy transition to the new owner. And uh, you know some of the other other brokers or whatever you want to call them, you don't get that. And uh, that's that's a, a key key element um, I think for a big for a for a new person, you know, working with this species. So I, I guess I think, the one uh, you know the. I'm sorry to, to interrupt you, Matt, but I guess the okay. couple things that would would point out, to, you know, that come to mind for me is, are we relatively certain that the that the babies are coming over are indeed farm bred, um, and I have no reason to to believe they're they're not, um, and if they are indeed farm bred, do they have a chance of having some kind of you know parasite load that come in with them because they're coming from Indonesia? Does a new keeper need to you know, get uh, get a, a baby or, or newly established animal, even if it comes from uh, Ryan, and is it, does it need to be treated or taken to the vet? You know, th- those would be a couple things that, that come to my mind. Yeah, and in fact, you know, that, that's something that I think Jason Stevens touched on uh, it, during the roundtable, the second roundtable we just did just a couple weeks back. Um, clearly, I think, you know, people are going to do their diligence or they're not. And, and I think it, it, I would always suggest anytime you get an animal from a source that you're not 100% on, um, that it's worth doing a fecal. Um, it's, it's relatively inexpensive to do. Uh, it, the results are quick. And it's peace of mind, if nothing more. I think that right. when you have older snakes, that are clearly thriving, have good muscle tone, shed well, uh, the chances of them having a parasite load are probably less, uh, or else you'd probably be seeing some some compromised health as as a result, I I guess, depending on on what it had and and how big of a load it had. But uh, the presentation that that I found very interesting was in the, and, and I don't want to misquote him, but, he had stated that in the vast number of imported animals that he had brought in from Bushmaster in his earlier days of collecting and working with condos, I I think he had said that there was not a single one that ever tested positive for parasites. So the risk is there, and, and and especially when you're working with larger collections, more expensive collections, you know, be, be foolish not to, to take that proactive step to to get that test done. So, I mean, I guess that's my standpoint on it. Okay, very good, very good. I, I would check any snake that I got if I'm going to put it with my other snakes. I mean, I 
I'd for sure check a, an import. But I mean, even if I don't, I don't think it matters who you get it from. You to be responsible, you should check all of them, regardless of where they come from. Um, this is just my opinion. Um, especially if you have really nope. valuable animals, you don't want to, you know, it's quarantine, you know. It's, it's the way to yeah, go. That's the way to go. You gotta, you gotta check new stuff for sure. It's, but, you know, I, I gotta say, every every import I've had is, it's, I'm pretty, almost 100% positive they've been wild caught. This is years ago, though. And they all had parasites. I mean, it was ridiculous. And then, you know, you take him to the vet. It's the same old routine. I used to take stuff to the vet before he figured out the routine. So the, the last import I got, you know, after all the other ones had died, um, I didn't take it to the vet. I got some Duranset, Flagyl, and Panicure, <laughs> and loaded the thing up. And the thing lived for about 10 years. <laughs> so it, uh, it, it was loaded up with stuff, too. And then the thing uh, pooped out like a big hunk of wood. And, and it was, uh, but, but the thing lived a while. It did pretty good. But it was uh, these things have new scars and you know gouges out of them, and and it was pretty pretty amazing the stuff that used to come in. They're all skinny and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I would definitely check wild caught or I don't know if they're wild caught some of the stuff, but you you want to check anything, I think. Very good. Very good. Buddy, what else? What else are we going to talk about, or or guys? I mean, it's certainly open up to anything that you've seen on the uh, the forum recently that you wanted to talk about, or buddy, I know you uh, you recently had a a clutch of chondro eggs that crashed on you. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. First time that's ever happened in twenty years of python breeding. Period. So, really, you know, wow. Yep, really. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so you know. Trying to look for you know reasons, and I've reached out to a couple people that you know uh, have some background in you know reptile genetics, and have actually you know done reproductive studies and try to get their thoughts on what they believed may have happened. Um, and you know, of course, there's they have really no clear cut answer or reason. Um, you know, my initial thought was that uh, the pairing was. Uh, was maybe too tight genetically. They came from uh, the the uh, dam on both sides. Uh, on the male and the female were the same, but the males are different. And you know, just talking to the folks that that had uh, done genetic back genetic studies and have a background in it, they said, no, that's probably not you know tight enough to to cause anything. And you know, and a lot you know, most people's reactions were you know re, you know recheck everything in your incubator. And I know my incubator's spot on. Um, some people had suggested age, maybe she was too young, that led to uh, the demise, and I posed that to uh, a friend of mine that I may disclose at a, a certain point, but he he doesn't know of any etiology that would, or pathophysiology that would, uh, due to age, that would cause uh, a fully formed, you know, an embryo that's fertile to not follow through other than genetic incompatibility, so I'm I'm clueless. I'm I'm at a loss. I I do have plans to pair the female again, but then I'm you know having second thoughts. Do I want to don't want to risk another breeding? Um, so you know, with the same so male, with what, the same with the same male. 
Uh, yeah, I'm actually thinking. Well, could- I think I would want to do that uh, just to see if it was, you know, something out. You know, uh, the theory is is that uh, I noticed a, a lot of copulations were recorded initially in the winter, late winter, and then things kind of cooled off, and the snakes showed no interest. The female kind of, you know, she stayed on feed, and I just kept them together, and then in June, everything heated back up again, and then within a normal time frame, she went off feed, she ovulated, she laid eggs. Um, so, yeah, I'm very curious to see if I do a repeat, what, what the outcome will be. Did they all crash at the same time? At what point did they crash? How'd that work, work out? Yeah, so um, so the, the clutch was 15. There was 10 fertile, 5 fully shelled slugs, but I, you know, put them in the incubator anyway, just in case my, my eyesight misses something. Um, and, you know, the, the slugs went downhill within a couple of weeks and the rest of the eggs pretty much went the distance and two weeks out, you know, I had an egg crash and then a day or so went by and then two eggs would crash and then, uh, you know, another day would go by and another egg would crash and how they would go would be, they would just turn wet. So yeah. they would, they would get develop a wet spot and they would just turn completely wet um, and then, you know, of course they started smelling pretty bad. So I, I would pull them out. Um, unfortunately I didn't really start, I didn't think about snapping photos until I had about four or five eggs left. So, but just looking at the, what was in the embryo in the eggs at the time, the embryos to me looked like they were, you know, under deformed. And so three eggs went the distance or what I would consider the distance. So Historically, in my incubator, babies hatch on the evening of day 50. I get a, you know, a, a, a couple eggs will pip, um, but this didn't happen. So I waited till day 52, and it was essentially I I just decided that was the day to do it because I had three eggs left at that point. The other two of the three had started to develop the wet spots. So I was like, okay, let's let's pull the eggs and pip them just to see what's going on. And they were two neonates visibly deformed, and then there was another animal that was alive, so I let, you know, just left that in the incubator, and a couple of days later, it came out of the, uh, came out of the egg, you know, not, no egg yolk sac left, um, and I set it up into a hatchling rack, and a week later, it died, and the, the strange thing was, I never saw a tongue, so I was thinking maybe there was no tongue on that particular animal. So that that's pretty much the backstory. Do you think they could have gotten a, a temperature spike at some point while they were still in the female, like maybe like a subthermostat or something? Well, you know that, that I guess that could have happened. Um, so I do run all my cages. All my adult cages have you know heat panels, and they each have their own thermostat. Um, so the pairing was a summertime pairing. So you know it is possible, I guess that the the temperature was out of range for the female for the developing embryos. Um definitely a possibility. Yeah, I had a I had one a clutch that was kinda like that once. And uh <laughs> there were some pretty freaky looking hatchlings in there. And some that were normal and some that were early and died. But one of them was uh it was just it had no markings or pigment, but was full size with no eyes. And it was still alive. It was the freakiest thing. 
and uh, like a deformed head. <laughs> and then, but I, I have no idea what causes that. And then another time I had this, it's unrelated to condors, but this, this Burmese clutch, and I forgot, there might have been like, like 50 hatchlings or something, but all of them were normal, except for one was just a complete mess. It was just all twisted and mangled and and went full term. It's the weirdest thing. So I, I have no idea what causes some of that stuff. It's really odd. Hard, hard to say, for sure. But uh, I don't know. It's something as simple as, uh, you know, genetic uh, combination and that, and that particular animal. Yeah, the whole clutch, when you start getting a whole clutch that steadily goes down towards the end, it almost, uh, I mean, it's it's a bit like having full-term dead and egg, I, aside from the uh, from the deformities. I mean, that, that was the next thing that I was going to throw out to you guys as far as looking for some uh, insight on fully formed, full-term, fully pigmented, dead and egg babies of which I was plagued with last season. I had two clutches, um, coincidentally, both with 16 eggs in them, uh, one one of which I ended up getting only three surviving babies from. Uh, all the other ones looked, I mean, they were fully pigmented. They looked, I didn't see any kinks, any deformities. But the other 13, uh, dead an egg. And, and ironically, they were the biggest, healthiest, nicest-looking eggs from the minute they came out of the female to the minute I cut them open and all the neonates were dead inside of them. Uh, the other clutch of 16, I ended up getting only seven um, healthy animals, of which the, the remaining nine were fully formed, pigmented, dead an egg, no, um, no issues with kinks. Uh, and, you know, before the obvious uh, suggestion being keeper error, which it certainly could be, um, my third clutch I had uh, were, were started with 13, and that was the Azambuja clutch, there were 13 fertiles. Uh, one went bad about second week. The other 12 hatched out perfectly within, you know, uh, a month of uh, of that 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 clutch that went uh, three for 16. So I, I don't. I mean, what what's the consensus on that? Is that a gas exchange issue? Is that uh, not airing out my egg box uh, enough? Um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, guys? And what what temperature is the final couple of weeks of the eggs? Well, that's the other thing is earlier on, um, I was dropping from thirty one down to you know I guess it's back when I first started I was thinking in, in Fahrenheit so I guess I was like at eighty seven point five and I would drop down to like eighty six for the last. Uh, 15 days, I guess. But more recently, and dating back to my clutch that Tinley produced for me um, two years ago, I maintained 31 throughout, from from day one to to the day that they hatched. And, I mean, once again, I mean, just as another data piece of the puzzle, that clutch that Tinley produced for me was the first clutch where every egg that came out of her was fertile, and that was 17 eggs, and every egg hatched a beautiful red neonate. I got a 100% hatch on it. 
And again, I mean, my time, I was 31 from start to finish. So it's like I try to, obviously, you know, from a scientific standpoint, I try to, you know, limit my, my variables and my variances. But I, I seem to be getting things all across the board, which is either error on, on maybe my instrumentation or some sort of genetic component, or, or again, maybe is it a gas exchange thing? Well, you know, it's something I, I, I think about sometimes. And when, when Rico was still around, I had a conversation with him once about some stuff like that. But something we, we touched on was the, uh, the lower the temperature, the, you know, their metabolism slower and they need less to live. Less, less, less. They need to breathe less, or they need less uh, blood flow. So, I don't know. It's, it, it, for me, if you think about it, and this is, of course, nothing that I could say is the answer, but something I started trying with the last few clutches I had, I started using uh, after those eggs pipped. I don't know if yours pipped or they just died in there, but after one pipped, I would start giving them a night drop. You think I'm fighting them nuts, but I. I'd put that. I'd just take those eggs out. I'd give them a, bring them down to 78 at night, and then back up to like 82 during the day. And when I started doing that, it's it, some of those those snakes. They'd sit in that egg for like five days. It was amazing, and they wouldn't die. They just stay in there. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the answer to anything, but it's just a fluke that I did that doesn't make a difference. But I think lower temperatures do mean that they they need less 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 to live. Their metabolism is slower. And then uh remember once I accidentally cut open an embryo egg early once and I was looking at it and it was live. And I could see the heart beating. And I and I took it outside, it was kinda cold and that that heart slowed down immediately. It went real slow and I took it back in the house where it was warmer and it sped up. It was pretty quick. Um it was real odd. But uh, then I, you know, once they get to be, you know, the size of a hatch, they're probably not so sensitive. But I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Hey, Maybe David, I have a question your... for you. Do you, uh, do you? I have a question for you, David. Just, just quickly, I'm trying to think. You know, rule out parameters and stuff. With your incubator, is it a cooler style or is it a cabinet style? It's a cabinet. It's a habitat system. Okay. Do you do you put air into it? Do I introduce fresh air into it? Is that your question? Yeah. Um, I, I know with my incubators, I, I run a small aquarium air pump constantly into the incubator. Because I use a cabinet style, but I don't. Um, it's actually a converted wine fridge, and those things seal up really tight. And so I've always pumped air with an aquarium, just a small aquarium air pump into over the heat coils, uh, and I just you know think that that's you know good long term at least for my incubator. I don't know how well the you know how tight the habitat system uh, incubator will seal up, but that that's. Really, just the only thought I would have, you know. Yeah, it's maybe something to maybe something to consider doing. I mean, I tend to not disturb anything for the first two weeks, and then usually around two weeks is when you know I'm using Cambro boxes, no uh, 
no substrate. And after two weeks is usually when I'll pull the lid. And, and oh, by the way, I'm I'm running similar to how I think Marshall Mendez does in his habitat systems, running the main chamber dry, and I'm keeping the Cambro lid, you know, quote unquote sealed by just you know no gaps between the the lid and the box itself. And right. you know I get plenty of of humidity within the box. Such that again, at around two weeks is when I, very you know, hold my breath and take that lid off and and wipe it off uh, <laughs> as the crops begin to grow. Um, but what I but also what I do is um, usually at about fifteen days out, um, I will, you know, I haven't I haven't been in the situation where I've had multiple clutches, but uh, I will I flood the uh, the bottom of the main chamber and then i gape open the the lid in order to increase the air exchange between what's in the box and what's in the main chamber you know so i right. flood the main chamber okay. create humidity in the main chamber obviously so i don't dump the humidity from my egg box once i do crack the lid um but you know and then and then even during the, about the last 10 days i think about every other day I open up the incubator, remove the lid from the box just to sort of dump the heat and, and introduce fresh air, thinking, you know, again, along the lines of, is this a gas exchange issue? Um, and, and, again, I, I've done that, that same sort of routine practice across the board with results all over the place. And it's just one more thing that makes me nuts about breeding chondros. <laughs> as yeah, as yeah, if we yeah, need one more though. thing, right? Yeah, like when, a, when you have an egg mass with a bunch of eggs and there's a couple in the middle, where's the gaseous exchange on those? Right, yeah. I mean, so there you go. Well, so, you know, I don't know. Very perfect. Right. So so then why should that be? In? Exactly. Oh, man, it's just too many variables. Too many variables. <laughs> yeah. Well... I, I might not ever have the answer. I, I guess I guess the easy answer is it must be me. <laughs> well, I hope I, I get some eggs to the nest with. I want to play with some stuff. Try some try some things. See how it goes. Yeah. Maybe I ought to just let uh, let my female do the work for me one of these times. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's fun. Fun fun to experiment. Yeah. No, for sure. So what uh, what other pairings do you guys all have uh, going on this year? <laughs> I don't have a whole lot going on. Just two of them. <laughs> oh yeah, so. you've got the two. But buddy, do yeah. you have uh, some clutches going? Some pairings. Um, I've, I've got three pairings going on right now. I got I do have one female that's that ovulated, so she's going to lay something hopefully. Um, and then uh, I've got another pairing. I'm going to start. And maybe maybe in the next couple of weeks. So I'm gonna try four pairings of chondros this year. Nice. What about you, Bill? I know you just had that beautiful ovulation. Yeah, that was really, really exciting. Uh that was nice. That was Yeah, she she's a massive uh Wamina female. I don't know if uh the size of the ovulation has anything to do with the number of eggs in the clutch, but and I've seen a lot of different kind of snakes ovulate, but she scared me when I saw her. Um, yeah, that's cool, and, yeah. she, <laughs> and, and 
And she was like that, uh, the picture that I took, she was really just hanging off of the perch and, and uh, in a precarious position. But an hour later, she was not like that. She was back on her perch, still obviously swollen, but she looked, a, to me, a lot safer. Um, but she was she was bred to actually an animal that um, happenstance have it. I just I picked up from uh, Matt earlier this year. It was a male that yep. he uh, had uh, obtained from Marshall Mendez, uh, an animal, uh, a red neo called Jaeger, and uh, he's a lightly melanistic uh, chondro. It's just Van Myra, right? Is that Say that again, there. The Van Mirop line, yeah. Great, man. That'll yes. be it'll be nice if that goes for sure. Yeah. But yeah, really, really I don't know I don't know that there's a, much of a correlation between I mean you'd think there would be, but I mean I've had massive ovulations um give me twelve eggs and I've had an ovulation that I've missed give me seventeen. So Wow. I don't know. I don't know. The female actually that gave me the, the it was thirteen, not twelve. That was last year. That was my female Azambuja that at that time she was a seventeen hundred gram chondro. I oh, did yeah. not I did not raise her. I did not raise her. I did not do that to her, I <laughs> promise you. I bought her as an adult. Um but interestingly enough, the previous owner, who admittedly didn't have a lot of experience with chondros, had two very bad clutches of high slug percentages with her. Um, I thought, and I've kind of gone over this story on some of the previous shows, I, when I got her in, I thought there was a brick in the, in the box with her. She, I mean, that's how heavy it was. And when I got her out, I looked at her and I thought to myself, no wonder she had such poor uh, fertility. She's fat is how and, and I got a couple other guys look looking at her and and they said she's not fat at all she's just enormous and the truth is and yeah she she didn't look fat I just I, I it was just I, I had never seen an animal that large in a chondro um needless to say between her clutch last year of 13 eggs and now she actually just ovulated for me a week ago it's my only pairing. It's a repeat pairing with uh, with the same male. Um, she her ovulation last year was big, at seventeen hundred grams, but she only gave me the thirteen eggs. I proceeded to feed her very lightly, and I, and I kind of moved to much lighter feeding, where you know my adults are maybe getting a, a jumbo every twenty five days. Now she ovulated. She's probably about a, a 13, 1,400 gram condo now. So it'll be interesting to see, hmm. you know, what what she gives me this year. I, who knows if they'll even be fertile. She did get a lot of really good calculations, but it'll be interesting. The 17, the 17 clutch female was slightly under 1,000 a, a grams. Yeah, all right. Wow. Interesting. Bigger awesome. little eggs. They're big eggs. Um, let's say about average size on both both clutches. Yeah. Matt, do you have anything yeah. hooking up? Uh, yeah, I've got uh, I'm hoping to get two. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, one year I had four going, and they all took, and 
Did anybody else get that? No, I couldn't there's, hear. I couldn't hear hardly any of that. So basically, I've got four pairs going, and uh, I think one of my, my, my ones I'm looking forward to is the first uh, pairing with a red male to a red male <laughs> female. Matt, hey, Matt, Matt, Matt you phone bill. He pays phone bill. Matt, Matt. You now? Yeah, pay your phone bill. Hello? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> Is it not working? Now you're Can you hear me now? Barely, no. buddy. Barely. Still now. Buddy's going to put you on mute, man. Is <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we lost Matt. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. I I can call back. You won't be able to get back in, Matt. We're we're over our time. Oh, yeah. So what, if you, if you if you disconnect, you can't call back in. Uh, yeah. Can you hear me now? No, can't hear you. Yeah, All right. Well, I back. think I, we've, got, we've got ten minutes left of uh, recorded time yeah. anyway. So, okay. well, Matt, what you'll have to do is put a post up on the MVF of all your pairings, right. so we can go over okay. there and comment on it. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll do that. Just okay. can you hear me now. Yeah, and I and I know Matt. Uh, Matt's been working on also uh, a lot of the uh, the high yellow pedigrees. One of the things that uh, I know him and I had had discussed that really he had, he had brought up was just that 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 importance of preserving a lot of this uh, these pedigrees and the documentation and I I find that to be one of the really cool things about the the condo community and it's very I think specific to condos I I have to imagine that there there must be some other reptile species out there that they do it also um, that I'm just not aware of but just just the the amount that uh, of of effort that's put into the documentation and, and the tracking of lineages and pedigrees and, and I know Matt's been putting, putting forward uh, quite a bit of effort to uh, to piece together some of the the holes in the high yellow lineages. So and I know now with uh, with Rico being gone, you know I know a lot of that information. Uh, there's there's quite a few people that are are working on making sure. Uh, a lot of that legacy uh, is preserved as well with uh, with Signal Mountain and, and those pedigrees and lineages. So hopefully at some point there will be, you know, something akin to that husbandry guide where, you know, there's just uh, a, a nice, uh, you know, piece of literature where, where we can compile a lot of that information. Yeah, you're right, David. That's It's very a very, very important part of, of uh, what makes these animals so special. Yep. For sure. Real quick, I know we're we're running out of time, but it's real. We'll, maybe we can quickly get through this um, before the show expires. Um, I've seen this on Facebook a lot, well, not a lot, but several times, maybe in the past month, is uh, folks posting complete chondro pedigrees on Facebook, and I kind of cringe when I see that, only for the fact that. Uh, I don't take very good photographs, but people still 
routinely take them and try to use them as their own. And I'm always, when I see a complete pedigree, I'm always worried that that pedigree may be downloaded and then kept and used to misrepresent an animal in the future. You guys have any thoughts about that? Or do you think I'm just being a grumpy old guy? Uh, yeah, That's I don't know. Interesting. It's, it's, it's probably possible. I guess uh, for uh, the kind of people that would probably buy a pedigree animal would probably be the types that would ask questions, though. You know, so right. If somebody just if somebody just like uh, stealing pedigrees and trying to market them off, they probably get realized pretty quick. You know, they'd be discovered. So um, I'm not a real secure guy, though. So. Um, it's probably safe not to, you know, throw stuff around like that. I've got some cool old pedigrees that are handwritten by Trooper that are pretty neat. <laughs> so, that's that's cool. my old snake yeah, they're really neat. They're really, I still got it. It's awesome. But, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I can see if stuff could happen. Yep, which, which again, I think uh, that's that's one of the key key uh, driving points of the MVF. It's, it's, a, it's a place where, you know, reputable people with, uh, you know, unselfish interests are there to put people in positions to know what they sh- what questions they should be asking. To, I think in the end it all comes comes down to being, being educated, being knowledgeable about what it is you're getting into, and especially when you start shelling out big piles of money for, for heartbeats, essentially. Um, I mean, anybody who's doing that without putting in their their own due diligence, you know, I feel for them because those are the kind of people that are setting themselves up to be taken advantage of. Um, so, you know, I'm, I've always been one of the more outspoken guys on the forum, and, and it's precisely because of that. I just want it, – it, it's a real easy avenue right now on the Internet, and, and like, you know, it had been pointed out where in the old days you were actually seeing the animal before you bought it. And it's, it's just real easy to dupe people these days. And I just want to, like all of you guys, we, we just want to make sure people aren't taken advantage of, know what they're buying, and uh, put themselves in a position to be successful. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Buddy, we've got five minutes left. Um, let's thank thank these guys for coming on. It's I think it's been a fantastic show. I know uh, we have our next show is lined up. Is that right? That is right. At the, our next show will be Sunday, February first, nine p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're going to have Ryan Young with us. Cool. Very. That'll be great. That'll be great. I know Ryan's done. Uh, he's done some radio shows before. I have not. Uh, I have not heard uh, or listened to any of them. So I'm really looking forward to that. It'll be a good one. It'll, it'll, yes, it will be. Will be. Yeah, it'll be. All right, it'll well, be great. Great. Of what he's doing for sure. Absolutely. Great. All right, David and Matt. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank, thank you guys. Everything you guys do, that's really, really appreciated. Glad that you, all of you guys, you know, you, you're awesome.
Likewise, Greg, right. you know, and, and Bill and Buddy, all you guys, all your contributions, uh, you know, at, hey, like Barry always says, we do it together, and uh, that's what makes it so fun. So happy holidays to all that's you it. guys. Likewise. Right. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Pretty good show. Real good show. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I thought everybody did really well and contributed. It was balanced. And, uh, man, it was fun. It's good to give those guys some kudos. They they deserve it. Agreed. A lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of behind-the-scenes hard work. And the, the thing about it is uh, the MVF, it doesn't cost anything to join. You can go over there and become a member and there's, get all the great benefits. And you can do all the reading and research over there and use the search function. And it's free. It doesn't cost a thing. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and people, you know, even I don't really think about the cost that it it is uh, there to to maintain the site. And Greg talked about it a little bit uh, early that in the beginning there were some people that were generous, you know, with donations to keep it going. But uh, you know, he basically just said, "I don't want any money. You know, I just don't need it. You know, right. I don't know what he would do with I, I don't know what he would do with donations if he could make it more blinged out or." Uh, I don't know. Obviously, he's not too worried about it. Right. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great attitude too, and it's good that it supports yeah, itself. It and Absolutely, and he doesn't feel like he's burdened by it. Even more important. All right, my friend. I know it's late where you are, and it's late where I am. So. I uh, enjoyed it. Another another really good show. I think it's getting uh, really smoother every time we do it. Hey, I agree. All right, Bill. Well, have a happy new year. And happy new year, buddy. Talk okay. to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.